A good Tuesday morning to you, or hey, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, or maybe if you're, if you're listening, listening to this in 2026, after discovering Real Talk, and you're now making your way all the way through our podcast archive, whenever you're checking out this show, recorded live on October 5th, we thank you for joining us. In just a moment, the news of the day. And everything you need to know about what's going on around us. But first, a reminder that this show is made possible by our presenting sponsor. They're one of Canada's top growing companies, according to the Globe and Mail's third annual business ranking. Bitcoin Well, placing them on the upper half of Canada's top growing companies for 2021. It's the Globe and Mail's report on business ranking 172 out of 448 total companies. I stopped reading at 172, so I don't know where Real Talk or Relay Communication stacks up, but Bitcoin well ahead of us on the list, so our shout out to them. So how do you get on this list? Based on their three-year revenue growth of 254%, launched in 2019, Canada's top-growing companies celebrates entrepreneurial achievement in Canada by identifying and amplifying the success of growth-minded independent businesses in Canada. A shout out to our partners at Bitcoin Well. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk to Cadence Weapon. I'm looking forward to this conversation. The 2021 Polaris Music Prize winner. It comes with a Comes with a nice little check, fat check for 50K. Uh, congratulations to Cadence Weapon, the uh, Edmonton born, Toronto based rapper, producer, writer, uh, former poet laureate in the city of Edmonton, aka Rolly Pemberton. Uh, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to find out what uh, people down in southern Alberta, our home province, are doing, what they're doing down in Calgary to say thank you to, to basically healthcare workers, these care packages. It's amazing. A caterer. Uh, Javal Schuster is going to join us to talk about how they've, they've raised 55 grand over the past number of days. It, it indicates, I think, where the public appetite is, if you'll pardon me, to say thank you to healthcare workers. An amazing initiative down there. We'll get the details. And then a little bit later on in the show, I know that everybody, can I say everybody was impacted? Most people were impacted yesterday when Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp went down. Uh, Sarah Hoyles, we've got an expert going to be joining us in about 60 minutes from now, formerly a lecturer at the London School of Economics, uh, now a professor at the University of Alberta in Media Technology Studies, uh, Dr. Gordon Galba. This story is essentially writing itself. It's it's bigger than just a, a tech glitch. And there's a, do you call Frances Hagen? I think you call her a whistleblower. She's a whistleblower. She, she's, as we speak, testifying right now down in the United States. We're watching it right now on our screens here live out of Washington, D.C., yeah, she's uh, testifying at the Senate subcommittee today. Uh, the hearing is titled Protecting Kids Online. And it's uh, the company's looking at it's that part of that whole huge dump of files that Francis now we know. I mean, she was originally the source that no one knew yeah. who she was. Uh, and now she can be officially called the whistleblower. Um, just basically saying that. You know, Facebook prioritized growth over safety, profits over people. In other words, uh, like the gist of her message, and I was trying to read up on this because you see that 
opinions and theories online from some people as soon as Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp goes down. And by the way, I think I mean, Facebook's obviously huge. It's one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, Instagram, for for obvious reasons, generates a ton of revenue, and has a lot of users. But WhatsApp mm. is a major communication tool for people all around the world. Yeah. Uh, individuals and businesses. And this was a really big deal for them yesterday. I know a lot of people are probably reevaluating today how they do business and where they do business, trying to talk about vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and things outside their control. But it's more than just a, a tech glitch. A lot of people are going, well, hang on a second. Facebook's being investigated or potentially investigated. Was this was this some house cleaning? Was this was this the equivalent of going offline while the paper shredders work overtime yesterday? And I'm going to my conspiracy theorist for entertaining these ideas and wondering about this. Is this something, Sam, you're paying attention to? I mean, obviously, you have a lot of interest in tech. Were you following the story at all? You know, I, I wasn't closely following the story. I was, you know, personally, I was like the, the WhatsApp outage, I think, is the one that that kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say affected me the most personally, because like, you're right, it's like, I'm not, I don't really scroll Facebook aimlessly anymore looking for information, but I do use their communication tools to keep in touch with it. Like most of my friend group chats are yeah. on either WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, just by nature of everybody being on it. I mean, one of the things I was actually thinking about this morning about like how it affects you is like you know maybe not in the the immediacy that there's you know suddenly all these people that I've I've massively lost touch with but I've also just noticed that like when I meet somebody new generally speaking I can find somebody you know on Facebook pretty or easily yeah you know it's called creeping it's called creeping them well I mean yes (laughs) it's it's usually to try and make a legitimate connection and have a real conversation with them but like you know I also want to see what their dog looks like what's your what's your first go-to if you're looking for like you you obviously produce the show and uh, by the way I want to read a couple messages about the Mansbridge interview yesterday because we got a whole bunch from a whole bunch of people and they meant a lot and I was basically floating around on a cloud yesterday afternoon (laughs) No big deal. Just talking to Peter. Uh, But but so you'll book people on the show. You reach out to people. People go, how did Hoyles get that guest without revealing your secret sauce (laughs) or how you get the caramel in the caramel bar? Uh, What's your go to first? Are you like, do you go LinkedIn? Well, first of all, obviously, you go to someone's website or you search them, see if you can send them a DM on Twitter. But then you start diving, right? Facebook page, Instagram, LinkedIn. What like do you use all platforms? I do because it dep- it just depends on how accessible somebody is. Yeah, some people are locked down. Oh, totally. I also find that it's a lot of the tech experts that are locked down. I'm like, damn you! You know exactly why. What's go? What's what's up? But I also like yesterday. I was so pumped when Facebook went down. I was just like, oh. why? I just because I hate Facebook. Why do you um, hate Facebook? Because it's a cesspool. Okay, well, is it more of a cesspool than Twitter? I feel like Twitter... I, I, well, I feel like Jack Dorsey, the guy that's the head of Twitter, the, guy, yeah. the, the dude, um, they seem to be a little bit more willing, and may, maybe it's all appearances, but um, they, they seem to be more willing to address issues and, you know, like... Yeah. Nip it in the old bud. Yeah. Um, you mean, okay. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I was like, nah. And then I go, okay, I, I will say... Because I'm not a huge fan or proponent for people just getting canceled. However, sometimes it's nice to see somebody get canceled. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that the that POTUS, that 45 was canceled, but there was that remarkable period of time. Uh, whatever it was, it was probably 12 hours. It might have been even shorter than that. And Twitter was first to, to so-called de-platform Donald Trump. 
right? And it was after the the riots. It was after January sixth. It was after that disaster. There, I was I was watching on some news coverage last night around this Facebook thing. Images again, and I feel like it had been a couple of months since I'd seen images of of you know basically Capitol Hill under siege, and mm. and the words feel dramatic, but they're actually fitting. It was a full blown riot. Uh, people died, were seriously injured. It was wild. And it was right around that time that, that I mean, there was even like, I, I remember even Pinterest said Donald Trump will not have an account. Really? It's like, yeah, I don't think Donald Trump's pinning any. What's Donald Trump pinning? Everything's gold on his know. Pinterest. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and I don't even get the joke because I'm not on Pinterest. Really? But yeah, I'm, I, just, I, I see. He has I'm, gold everything. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I know, I know. I just don't get Pinterest that much. I don't know much about Pinterest. I, I just know it's a valuable tool for people. And every once in a while, it surprises me. Like I, I often mention Mike from Eden Landscaping, one yeah. of our partners. I remember talking to him once and he's like, oh, he's like, I have to be on Pinterest. He's like, so many of our clients have Amazing. keep Pinterest boards of what they want to do with their landscaping. So for him, for Mike, like if Pinterest goes down, that's probably a big deal for him. For me yesterday, it sucked. I was supposed to be joining a classroom uh, for read in week, it's called where, you know, people can can pop in. Of course, you know, typically it's in person. Yeah. In past years, I've been able to like bring our dogs when they were little puppies and do all the things the kids love and answer questions about what I do for a job. None of the kids care about what I do for a job, but they, <laughs> but they love the stories. Yesterday, all of the correspondence and contact information I had uh, was on Instagram, it was via Instagram from a teacher who had tracked me down on Instagram. I had no way of finding the link. I had no way of contacting her. I had no other. I, I felt horrible. And it was just it, it sucked. I mean, my problem was the least of everybody's. Right. Uh, but I'm just saying it, it reiterates how much we rely on these platforms. But didn't you? I loved it. It blew a hole in my like I was like, I want to go check because I have my loop. I don't know if anyone else does this, but I have a loop. Yeah. That I do. Um, and I couldn't do the loop. And well, so I just was like, oh, look, look at how much time, much of a time suck it is. You know, what's so ridiculous. And I'll admit I do the same loop. I go Twitter first, then Instagram. And then I typically go back to work. And then once every few days, I'll check Facebook. Yeah. And once every six months, I'll check LinkedIn. And that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yesterday I found that instead of doing less of the loop, I just spent more time on Twitter watching everybody make fun of Facebook. <laughs> Like Mark Zuckerberg and everybody from Facebook had to go on Twitter to yeah. talk about, sorry about our problems. And you know that the team at Twitter was loving it. Uh, Cadence Weapon, in uh, just a second, I wanted to remind you right now, you know, I've been talking a lot uh, about how the, this this sort of inventory shortage at, at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, plus every other dealership in Canada has been a real pain for people looking to upgrade their rides, whether it's a pickup, whether it's a nice sedan, whether it's something sporty for you. Well, here's the deal. They're ready to reload. Now, all these vehicles are on the way, so these numbers are legit, like, for today. But October is their biggest sale of the year, so you know that these numbers are going to drop pretty soon. Whether they're on the lot or not, they're on the way right now. 335 Ram 1500s. Yeah, that's right, 335 of them. 145 Grand Cherokees, 76 Wranglers. This is right from the top. This is word from head office. 57 Durangos and 46 Gladiators. You can get in on the action now. I know a lot of you have been itched, just ready to go on a new whip. You'll find them the best selection. And, of course, a great team that values your return business, their service, the best in the game at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. 
Also, big shout out to our wine sponsor this month. I'm going to make you a promise, and this is kind of the whole point of it. This is why we agreed to do this deal. I am never going to tell you about a wine that sucks. This is always going to be a wine that's going to make you look good and smart in front of your friends. So our wine partner for the month of October is La Crema. Okay? Now, La Crema, lacrema.com, 40 years of winemaking excellence. I love what I've seen from La Crema thus far. I had a chance to try their brand new La Crema Sonoma Chardonnay. The Pinot Noir, also fantastic. And I'm not a big Sauvignon Blanc guy, but they tell me, they tell me it's supposed to be excellent. By the way, Jillian, one of our regular real talkers on the live chat, she used to live in Montreal, so I'm going to give her the, I'm going to trust her on this one. She wrote in last time, said it's not Sauvignon Blanc, it's Sauvignon Blanc. There's no subtle C, there's no... There's no, it's not Blanc, it's Sauvignon Blanc. So if you want to get your hands on the brand new La Crema Sonoma Sauvignon Blanc, I encourage you to look for it. You can find it at Wine and Beyond Costco if you live in Edmonton at Sherbrooke. And more importantly, if you don't see it, ask for it. Our next guest is the winner of the 2021 Polaris Music Prize. This is this is based on artistic merit uh, without regard to genre, without regard to sales history, label affiliation. Uh, it's presented by CBC Music, determined by a grand jury of 11 music media professionals. He's from Edmonton, continues to rap it, based out of Toronto now, rapper, producer, writer, former poet laureate, Caden Sweppen, making his Real Talk debut. It's great to have you here. Congratulations, first of all, and welcome to Real Talk. Yeah, no, uh, this is, I feel like, um, Albertan rite of passage coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that. So how are you feeling right now? I mean, you, this is, I, I got to be something, I, I would imagine that as, as an artist, you're not, you're not going to say to us, oh, I've always wanted to win the Players Music Prize. I always, I put out albums to win the Players Music Prize, but it's got to feel pretty good when your work is rewarded like this. Oh, no, that was like one of my major goals when I made this album was oh, to win it. the Players <laughs> Prize. I'll, I'll keep it real. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, no, it feels really good. I mean, um, especially for this particular album, you know, I put a lot of thought and preparation into it. And honestly, I'm just so stoked. It's, it's just been a whirlwind. It's been the craziest week of my life, basically, you know, because like it was Polaris. I played a couple sold out shows in Toronto. I started my American tour, played Denver, Chicago, Cleveland. And now I'm in New York and I have a show uh, tomorrow in Brooklyn. I'm looking forward to I mean, I have a lot of questions for you, and I know that we only have you for 15 minutes because, as mentioned, you're on tour and you're doing a ton of media. Everybody wants to talk to you after this. So I'm going to try to fit this in as much as I can. But when you say and I love that you tell us the truth, that this is a prize that you did have your eye on. Why was it this one that mattered to you? What's so special about this one? Well, you know, um, the Polaris Prize, it really is an award that's all about artistic merit. You know, and it's like the, I was nominated for the very first one in 2006. And I feel like that's a really big part of my career. Just, you know, I feel like I've been one of those artists who's kind of like synonymous with Players Prize, but I never won one. And, you know, it's just it was one of those things for like your legacy as an artist. I know it's not like cool to be like that forthright about, you know, caring about your legacy. But um, it, it means something to me. You know, it's like I, I've seen a lot of rappers come and go over the years and it's, you know, I'm just really proud to have something like, you know, they can't can't take that away from me. I got Polaris. Yeah, no kidding. You uh, you, you talked about, I mean, in the announcement 
a couple of major things. And, and one of them was the reason with the album Parallel World, why it was important for you to um, to not shy away from politics, you know, and, and uh, you, you wrote, for example, that you'll be using some of your resources, uh, part of this $50,000 prize to organize voter registration events around the Toronto municipal election, the Ontario provincial election as well. You say we need some changes to our leadership. Take us into this. What do you mean? What's motivating you there? Yeah, and not just those. I really want to get involved with the uh, next election in Alberta as well. So I'm, I'm going to be involved with that. But basically, um, the thing that really inspired me, and I think I'm not alone in this, just during the pandemic, you know, I feel like even the past couple of years, I should say, I've never been more politically engaged in my entire life. You know, I've been like on the virtual kind of uh, city council meetings, like actually watching the process and like getting a better understanding of, you know, instead of just being like, you know, it, Toronto sucks or whatever, but really thinking about like dig, digging deeper and understanding like the institutional reasons for why the city has changed in the way that it has, you know? And the more I dug into that, the, the more research I did, like I wrote this article for uh, this publication, Hazlitt, uh, about a neighborhood called Little Jamaica in Toronto, that currently there's um, LRT construction that hundreds of businesses have closed, you know, it's all black businesses and, you know, I, I, you can see this community being disenfranchised in real time. And so I started doing all this research about, you know, other communities where similar things happen, like Africville and Halifax. And I, I you know, the more I looked into it, the more I was just like, wow, like there, there's such a, a history of this happening. Can you see yourself ever getting in? I mean, I mean, technically, I mean, you are involved in politics here. You are talking politics to a politically engaged audience. That is involvement. Obviously, you have a platform. You ever see yourself running for office? You know, I've thought about it. And it's funny that you say that because I actually was um, asked to um, run in the federal election, potentially, um, at least to, you know, uh, compete for a spot or whatever. Who asked um, you? Oh, you know, should I say? Yeah, you should I don't know. Say. Maybe, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It was the NDP. Ah. Yeah. Did, and, did you, you know, did you I, give it some, you know, due consideration? Yeah. Yeah, I did. No, I thought about it a lot. Um, you know, it would have been for the the area the district that little jamaica is in and i'm quite passionate about that area but it was just like you know my my album was happening at the same time you know i'm, I'm in the process of writing a book and it, I, it was just like not the right time for me you know um but you know maybe somewhere down the line i'd be interested in doing that i think another thing that i thought about it and i i talked to so many different politicians i talked to like so many people that gave me great advice you know and um the more I realize, like, that is a really intense job. You know, you got to move to Ottawa. You know, there's so much involved with it. And I think, you know, I'm still a very active artist. And I feel like, you know, that 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 thing never goes away. Like, it's something I can do further down the line. I was just going to say, I mean, you, you obviously a lot of people are eager for your music. I'm not sure. I don't know if you have our live chat going right now on the site. I almost don't want you to be looking at it because I want you to be, oh, uh, no. you know, but but people are like, as soon as you came on and it's a 50 50 split, by the way, people like either calling you Cadence Weapon or Rolly. But either way, people are connecting with you and happy to see you here. I would say you've still got a lot of runway on the career and a whole lot of influence, obviously, uh, full of talent and, and and politics always can wait. But I think engagement's great. You, you also mentioned the prime minister. You know, you say I wanted to take the time to mention that Justin Trudeau's worn blackface so many times. He can't even remember how many times. And he was just given a third term. That's exactly why I need to be making rap records that are political. It was remarkable uh, last year. I mean, we've we've seen, you know, so many 
uh, influential things happening in society. And some people might think that that's a curious way to describe it. But in the midst of a pandemic, which has been almost like a huge reset, I mean, it's been a major shakeup over what will prove to be at least a two year window. We've had a very significant Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's fair to say spurred by tragedy, uh, spurred by murder, quite frankly. Uh, and then also what's happening right now in Canada in the context of truth and reconciliation. There are a lot of things going on right now. How, how, ha- how has everything I just mentioned influenced you as an artist? Well, you know, it's really important for me as an artist. I feel like that's the ultimate goal of, of, the, of an artist is to speak truth to power. You know, and that's something that's really important to me. Like I grew up listening to Public Enemy, The Clash, you know, Gil Scott Heron, you know, Nina Simone, artists who like, you know, they, they didn't let their political leaders off the hook, you know, and I feel like especially in rap today, it's not as common, you know, like I think a lot of people are afraid to, you know, uh, it's like that Michael Jordan line, you know, it's like Republicans buy sneakers too. Yeah. You know, and for me, I don't really care about that. I'm just going to be real and just be honest about like where I stand. And the reason like I brought up Trudeau is it's like, you know, we've been disappointed over and over by seemingly progressive politicians who, you know, they run on the politics of hope and all these things. And then, you know, you look behind the hood and it's, you know, you're swapping blue for red and it's the same thing under underneath, in my opinion. You know? And, you know, I have a line on my album where I'm like, sometimes don't want to see face, but I know I must face the facts. My prime minister wears blackface, but he don't really want to face blacks, hmm. you know? And that's really how I feel. Like, it's like, uh, I, I feel like, you know, you saw what happened with like Selena, you know, like, I, I just feel like there's just a lot of, um, what, you know, it's a lot of like um, superficial uh, appeals to the black community in Canada, but not something truly concrete. You know, I, I, his cabinet is not as diverse as it needs to be. Like, I mean, there's there's a lot of things I could say. You're, you're talking about Selena Cesar Chavez, I assume. She yes. was, yeah, she joined us on Real Talk a while ago. People can check our archive for that. It was a great interview. Um, I was really impressed by her. Do you think that Canadians do we do we give ourselves a, a bit of a pass on on uh you know, issues surrounding equality in Canada, racism, uh, the context of Black Lives Matter. I think there's a lot of we kind of peer over the fence as a nation and we look at the U.S. and we go, right, like, oh, look at those Americans and their problems with racism. Uh, you know, we're, we're not we're not exactly squeaky clean on that file. No, absolutely. I mean, especially with regards to indigenous people like, you know, uh, we're, it's a shame that we're only having like the first truth and reconciliation day mm. now, you know, it's like, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done, you know, and our country isn't perfect, but you know, I'm in America and I right now, and I think the thing I really noticed is it's like, yeah, it's more honest, you know, like the people will be like racist to your face here. Whereas in Canada, it's more of this thing where it's like, they do it with a smile, you know, or it's like, they'll like, um, they'll be smiling to your face and they'll close the door in front of you, you know, and that's what it, that's what it feels like to be like a person of color in, in Canada. You, uh, you said, uh, you know, in, in accepting this prize, if you're just tuning in, if you're live streaming us on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Cadence weapon, uh, winner of the 2021 Polaris music prize. Uh, you said this goes out to everybody in Edmonton, everybody in Alberta, uh, from Edmonton, 780, you, you say we've never been here before. You went on to say uh, to the young artists that are listening right now that are watching this, you don't have to be from Toronto. Your experience is valuable. Your art matters. Uh, if you're from Western Canada, 
anybody will understand what you're getting at. People in Toronto may be like, what's that all about? <laughs> you want to explain to everybody in Eastern Canada why it was important for you to say that? Yeah, yeah. It was really, so, I, it was something that I said, if I ever won anything, like I had to say that because I, I went through a lot being an artist from Edmonton, you know, trying to make it in the rest of Canada, trying to make it in the rest of the world. Back when I first started being a Canadian rapper, that was like the craziest thing ever. Like you tell an American, they're like, what's that? You know, like I, I put out my first records like before Drake, you know, but um, just coming from the prairies, just being a rapper from Edmonton, like going to Toronto, people would tell me like, you know, I'd be like, hey, I'm from Edmonton. And they'd be like, where's that? This is people from Toronto, yeah. right? Right. They're like, where's that? Or they're like, oh, hey, I'm sorry to hear that. Like yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's like a shameful thing or something to be not from Toronto, you know, yeah. but, but that, that was my thing is like with everything I do, I wanted to like make, you know, I wanted to make us feel proud, you know, like this is the thing we were, we're um, un unabashedly Albert, you know, it's like Albertans can make, you know, very progressive art, you know, like, I just want to like, I'm, I'm sick of the like kind of stereotypes and these like preconceptions, you know, and preconceived notions that the rest of Canada has about Alberta and like just West of Ontario, you know, because it's like, we're popping. We got our own thing going on, you know, that we have our own culture. And that's, I really wanted to like hype that up for young artists because I remember I didn't really have anybody to look up to in the same way, you know, as things are a bit different now. But I remember like when I was a kid, I, I'd be watching Rap City on Much Music and it's like all rappers from Toronto only, you know, and, and maybe one or two from Vancouver, but really nothing from the middle of Canada, you know, and it's like, I, I feel really proud to like kind of fill that void. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was like everybody in Toronto and then swollen members for a lot of years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I, I love, I, I just uh, popped in on the chat. I great. I love seeing Mariah Braun. Uh, she's watching this morning. Uh, she's a filmmaker and she says, you know, it's, she says totally what he's talking about. It's so hard as an artist uh, to make it in more rural areas of the country. You talk about the unique culture in Alberta. You also indicated that you're motivated to, you know, um, you know, contribute your voice and your perspective the next time that Alberta holds a provincial election is if I need to tell you that, you know, the province is virtually on fire right now. Uh, the politics is, is, is like a dumpster fire. And uh, and that's probably me being generous right now. I was uh, just the other day talking to a buddy about how I've got this Alberta flag up um, in the place where we throw darts. We call it the cabin. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, I've always been proud to have that Alberta flag up and the Alberta flags come with me. I went to university in Vancouver. I mean, they couldn't ignore the Alberta flag. I was proud to have it. Uh, and, and then as time has gone on over the past number of months, it's it's almost come to symbolize something else like and and I know that a lot of people are like, hey, I'm, a, I'm, I'm proud as hell to be from here. But it's also so embarrassing to be from here right now. Do, do, do you sense that? I mean, are we we're hyper aware of it and we're sensitive about it in Alberta right now? What about you know, across the rest of the country when you, when you're in and around some of the major urban centers, are people talking about Alberta? Oh, well, I mean, anytime they bring it up, it's going to be something negative. I, I think there's only just like a, a superficial understanding of it. Like, I mean, I still have people like, they're like, Hey, so you're from Calgary. You're from Winnipeg, right? Like they, they it doesn't matter to them. Like they, you know, the, the West of Ontario could be just like one city as far as they're concerned. But, you know, I actually have a line on my album, um, you know, I might bring an Alberta flag on Kimmel, you know, like that was my, that's like come, one of my other dreams is like, if I play on some late night TV show, I'm going to put up the Alberta flag. Wrap you yourself, know, man. Like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, so, but here's the thing is like, we can't let like, you know, the really like right wing extremist people or like these politicians turn the Alberta flag into like the Confederate flag. 
Like it's, it, it doesn't have to be like that, but like to certain people, it's starting to look like that, you know? Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, how good does it feel? I mean, I know that we're not out of COVID yet, and I know that there are still people in hospitals and ICUs. More and more people are getting vaccinated. I know some people feel like they can see a light at the end of the tunnel. It might not be next week, uh, but how good does it feel as an artist to be able to tour and be able to perform in front of people and, and be able to like get a bit of normal back? Oh, it means everything, man. Like it, It's really... I didn't realize how much I missed it until I got to do it again. You know, even coming out here, like they're further ahead on everything. Like they're just, it's a new normal. They're just moving on with their lives in America. It's kind of trippy because there's, you know, the restrictions vary from place to place. Like I just played in Cleveland and where it was like only 50% of people are vaccinated. And there are all these fans who hit me up and they were just like, yeah, well, I can't come to the show. Cause like, and me and like 15 of my friends, none of us are vaccinated. I was just like, wow, this is like really a thing, you know, like they're it's it's like very uh, divided in yeah. America. In if, a, it was, in a, in a if it was if it was up to you, if you were calling the shots for the rules that your shows, uh, would you insist that everybody in there be have full vaccination status? Yes, absolutely. Fuck. Yeah. No, there's there's is it's un, unequivocally. Yes, because not only. OK, I had to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated to come into this country in America. Right. So it's like if I have to do it, the people who are coming to my shows should have to do it too, you know? And it's also another thing. It's like, it's just a responsible thing to do. I don't want to be like playing all these shows and be like this, you know, roving uh, typhoid Mary type figure. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I've got, I'm rolling with rapid tests. Like I'm taking rapid tests, like after all the shows. Yeah, like, I know it's like rapid test, the new protection, right? Don't leave home without it. Uh, listen, I better let you go or your management team is not going to let you ever talk to us again. Uh, speaking of everybody getting vaccinated, speaking of you, the pride of Edmonton, Alberta, obviously 2021 Polaris Music Prize winner. We can't wait to welcome you. Uh, we've got a new studio soon to be under construction. Maybe next time you pop through town, we'll get you in studio. It'd be a great honor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, we got a link in real life. All right, man. Congratulations. That's uh, Cadence Weapon, winner of the 2021 Polaris Music Prize, his album Parallel World. You can download it, find it anywhere you get great music and congratulations to cadence uh joining us live from new york city that was great i appreciate him joining us on tour it's got to be feel good as an artist i feel like i, I got to qualify everything i say right now and i don't mind doing it because i know there are a lot of sensitivities and a lot of people are not ready to uh and it's totally fine uh not mentally or even physically ready to be attending live events and to be gathering in person and for some people it's even been shocking i think to see photos of groups gathering together. Um, some might even say that, you know, in some jurisdictions like Alberta, uh, you know, where COVID deaths are three times the national average, it's counterproductive for people to be gathering in large groups. But with with double vaccination status and with some of the safeguards in place, I know that some people, uh, myself included, to a certain degree, are, are pretty eager to see some elements of normal come back. You think of how many performers like just people in the arts, just people in arts and entertainment. You think of how many people's lives were turned absolutely upside down over the last year and a half. It's still upside down. I mean, the idea that, but it didn't have to be this way, ultimately. I mean, the idea that it has taken such a toll on local businesses, on restaurants, on arts and entertainment. Um, the fact that it has taken such a big toll, it didn't have to be that way. We could have clamped it down, uh, had consistent messaging. Uh, I mean, I'm repeating things that everyone has talked about and lots we'll of people have said. We'll keep repeating it. 
Yeah. Keep repeating it. I ran into a guy uh, that I've worked uh, a ton of events with, a ton of live events. He's a he's an AV professional, audiovisual guy, just like very good at what he does. I'd walk into these events as the teeth and the hair, right? All I got to do is make sure my bow tie looks not too neat and tidy, right, Sam? You know how it goes. You got to make sure it's got bow ties got to be too perfect. It's fake. It's fake if it's too perfect. Everybody knows that. So my job really was to make sure that the bow tie is just slightly sloppy, just a tiny bit sloppy. It's like how tussled messy hair is the new perfect hair, you know? And uh, and I would show up and just read the script and the AV guys and those teams and the event managers and the event planners, not to mention the culinary teams and the fundraisers and everybody else. These are the people, the real talented teams at work. And I ran into this guy just the other day and I said, how have you been doing, man? And he just looked at me like like the bottom fell out of his professional life. You know, and and it's not my place to tell his whole story, but like he moved back in with his folks. He had to sell some things, had to make some adjustments like it was a big deal. And they've been doing, you know, everybody's pivoted and and tried, you know, gotten into the virtual event game. But, you know, and and I've hosted a bunch of virtual events and I appreciate that people are are pulling them off. But it's not the same. It's not the same as a big gala mixer. And you can't charge you like the artist can't actually recoup a lot of the costs yeah. um, and make the kind of money. I mean, when we spoke to those, the Canadian comedians or the uh, comedians from that are living in Canada um, saying that, yeah, their, their money has dried right up and they can do online shows, but it's not the same. Uh, my brother-in-law, he was working for Cirque du Soleil. He was traveling the world um, and everything got shut down. So he had to come back here and try to figure it out and doing things off, you know, odd jobs here and there yeah um yeah the arts have just been decimated nicholas and and we can like do our part although sometimes i feel like on this show we're preaching to the choir but this is you know i I just like treat this as a reminder i think that you know it's up to us to continue to speak to the people in our lives that we know that we can influence Uh, i saw our buddy dr darren markland was on the national last night doing an amazing job with adrian arsenault uh, it, that guy's just unbelievable. Nicholas on our live chat says, "Stop turning the Alberta flag into the Confederate flag." Yeah, that resonated with me too. Absolutely resonated with me too. Deborah says Eric Clapton won't play shows where a vaccine is required. She goes and say, "What an idiot!" You know what? Though I learned a lot about Eric Clapton. Have you have you actually like heard about that one concert? Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but like where he just it was like in the seventies and he just went on this like racist tirade, this like horrible racist tirade. Hmm. Yeah, it's like really bad. If you're a Clapton fan, I was like, who doesn't love Eric Clapton? Like, he's like one of the all time greats. I listen to anytime a Clapton tune comes on. I'm like, yeah. And then I read that and I was like, oh, yeah. And then how he just recently released that song that's anti-vax. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah. So I was like, OK, never playing that again. All right. Never uh, playing Tears in Heaven. Tears in Heaven. Yeah, that's a Tears sad song. Yeah. Jill is uh, suggesting that uh, Rolling with Rapid Test could be uh, maybe a new single, which I would agree. Um, and then Ytrium says, all right, Jess, we'll flex some more about the new studio. Uh, I will flex on the new studio when the new studio is prepared to be flexed on. How's that? But we're really excited. So, Sam, you want to take camera four for just a second? We're getting way ahead of ourselves. But let me just say that this beautiful, wonderful, meaningful, intimate space will soon be but a memory. 
and a reminder of our humble beginnings here on Real Talk. You don't Talk. like 150 square feet? Yeah, well, it's a little bit bigger than that. <laughs> I know you're joking. It's bigger than that. But at the same time, um, we're going to, yeah, we're taking on about, uh, I'm excited. About, I'm not going to talk too much about it. About six times our square footage. And um, we're going to have an entertaining space where clients and valued partners and real talkers in particular, probably Patreon supporters will be able to come join us and hang out. And of course, everybody knows that as soon as we can throw a real talk tailgater, that's going to be something that we're all very motivated about. The team at Grand Dog reached out to me. They're like, hey, whatever that tailgate's going to be about, you know, they're like, can we be involved in that? I thought, you know what we could do is we could do like a puppy petting zoo. That might be kind of cool. All kinds of ideas. Hey, if you're going to be hitting the road, if you're ready for a dose of sunshine, our friends at Jet Set Parking want to remind you that this winter you can choose non-stop service from Edmonton to Montego Bay. Non-stop. Not going through Calgary or Toronto or Vancouver. You can park your money in the bank, park your car at Jet Set en route to Montego Bay. And if you go to jetsetparking.com right now, this doesn't this isn't the only destination where this applies. This promo code applies regardless of where you're going. If you're flying out of Edmonton International Airport, the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com lets you book parking for $8 a day. It's ridiculous. $8 a day, not an hour, $8 a day at EIA for any travel by the end of 2022. You know you're going away next August. You know you're going away next fall. Book your parking at jetsetparking.com with the promo code REALTALK today. They're locally owned. I guarantee you'll love them. We love dealing with them. Our friends at Friesen Brothers, of course, know that this Thanksgiving, many of you are going to be cherishing family like, like never before, right? So many things to give thanks for amid all this noise. Why not leave all the work to them and their talented team? Everything you need for your Thanksgiving dinners there. If you want to do the cooking, if it's your special recipe... They've got Alberta Fresh or Frozen free-range turkeys and hams. But of course, it's catering by Friesen Brothers I want to talk to you about today. And you can book it. You can learn more details at Friesen.com. This year's feature Thanksgiving dinner includes roasted Valbella gammon ham. The Valbella team's amazing. Mother dough dinner buns, sourdough stuffing, cranberry sauce, gravy, and then your choice of veg, potato, salad, you can order it online, again, via Friesen.com. And don't forget, it's Pumpkin Spice Season 2. That means that torts, parfaits, cookies, muffins, and pies are all there because pumpkin and spice makes everything nice. <laughs> pumpkin spice is like... There's kind of like... There's like the vaccinated... Okay, let me be very clear right now. My Friesen Brothers ad read is over, and this is my personal <laughs> musing. This is not... From the president's office at Friesen Brothers. But do you find that there's the vaccinated and the unvaccinated? There, oh are, there are Flames and Oilers fans. And then there are people into pumpkin spice and those that are not. <laughs> like when you want to talk about division. When you, talk, when you want to talk about strong feelings. Pumpkin spice is right up there. Are you a big pumpkin spice latte guy? I... I don't think I've I, ever I'm, seen you drink a latte. No, I don't run. I love them. They are delicious. And that's why I limit myself to like two per year. And uh, I kid you not. Like I'm not in August, August, August yeah. when yeah. But Starbucks rolls them out. Yeah. I'm not like first in line to get one. I'm just like, no, it, it, like it has to feel cold outside for me to enjoy. But this there beverage. is something about them. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, they're worth every one of the 1,600 calories in oh, a pumpkin yeah. spice. Like, you're shaking your head no? No, I'm actually in the anti. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anti. Spice. You're, you're not so much. They, they call it PSL. Like if you want to use the hashtag pumpkin spice lot to PSL is kind of okay. I'm anti PSL. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have found it yesterday because Instagram was down. That's the, the, right. The, all the influencers that would have been tweeting and posting about their their PSLs. No, I want the original. I like. I love pumpkin pie. Lo- mm-hmm. uh, uh, of pumpkin pie and that to me is like that's the source you go straight to the source yeah i don't need the latte and it always just seems too sweet like i just oh the pumpkin pie with the, like a dollop of whipped cream on the top hello yeah. yeah i should i should probably do the dairy queen ad read right now to remind everybody <laughs> that they've got the pumpkin pie blizzard but instead i'm going to talk cheeseburgers should i just do it you guys are like fucking seriously man you're the boss I mean, I guess. I mean, it's your we've got, show. We, do we, 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 Yeah, we have, we've got a guest like ready to rock and roll right now. But but I don't think Javal Schuster is going to care about you know because we're still talking about food, right? And we're about to get into catering and how Javal's raised like c- closing on sixty grand and it's about to jump after this interview again for for healthcare workers, people in the ICU, etc. But okay, okay, fine. Let me just take a quick second to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queen, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood, this is so shameless. But like, this is like what happens when you start thinking about Dairy Queen. You drop everything and you act. You head to the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road to pick up a pumpkin pie blizzard, right? Or a pecan pie blizzard treat. They're here for fall. The pumpkin pie blizzard has the real chunks of pumpkin pie. They also wanted me to remind you that Miracle Treat Day is coming up later this month. We're, of course, as that day approaches, going to let you know. But here's what I love about these five locations. They're like, you know, most, well, I don't want to crack on the other Dairy Queens because good for, this is, all, this is great. It's great across the board, but the other Dairy Queens are donating the profits. Like, the you know, they see the process, like the profits from the, from the blizzards. Not these guys. These five Real Talk partners, they, they just take gross. They take every single cent when you go buy a blizzard there on Miracle Treat Day. They donate it. And we're going to be telling you more about that amazing fundraising initiative coming up. Two cheeseburgers for five bucks. Why would you do that when you can get two doubles for seven bucks? Don't waste your time with the singles. Go straight to the doubles at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. All right. Javel Schuster. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, launched uh, what they're calling the I see you like I see you with my eyes. I see you. I see you care package initiative in my hometown of Calgary, Alberta for 15 bucks. You can donate a hot meal that would be delivered to staff at intensive care units in one of Calgary's four main hospitals. Well, after a number of days, 55 grand raised and a whole bunch of meals delivered. It's a real pleasure to welcome this mover and shaker Javal Schuster to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. You you look like you're uncomfortable with the praise, but my friend, you just raised like almost <clears throat> 60 grand. So the title fits. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, and thank you very much for asking me to come on your show. I was amazed when I got the email last night from Sarah because I am very grateful for you and your team and this show. So uh, and everything you're doing and saying, I just I've longtime listener. Wow. And uh, and I've started following lots of excellent people and doctors and epidemiologists and 
people who you've been suggesting on your show. So thank you very much. Well, I can't tell you how much that means to me, uh, sincerely. And, and, and it kind of feels like as you're saying this, and here you are doing something remarkable, and it kind of feels like we're getting back, reminding each other that the whole we're all in this together thing is a thing. Yes, we are all connected for sure. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, I love that your phone's blowing up right now. I hope it's people being like, you're on Real Talk. OMG, you're on Real Talk right now. <laughs> it might also be people saying, uh, I've got like another 1500 bucks I'd like to donate to this ICU, ICU initiative. How did this come about? I mean, you own a catering company. Obviously, you're paying attention to what's going on around you with healthcare workers. Of course. So uh, when the latest set of restrictions were announced on September 15th, um, many, many of our events were immediately canceled because you can't host private gatherings uh, with more than 10 vaccinated people from more than two households. So we had lots of uh, heartbroken clients uh, who had long awaited uh, celebrations um, thinking that by, by the time we got to this point, uh, they'd be able to do that. So that was really discouraging for us. Um, our team was really busy over the summer and really happy to be helping people celebrating again. And then the situation has been getting worse and worse. And, and I kind of knew on July 1st, when all the restrictions were lifted, that we likely wouldn't make it to Thanksgiving without there needing to be some more restrictions in place. Um, so that was really discouraging and disheartening and so uh, and hard to dig in once again and figure out okay, how are we going to respond? What are we going to do? And I just kept thinking about how, you know, people often say when you feel like things aren't going well, what there's always something to be grateful for. And uh, I really love Thanksgiving. And I just kept thinking that part of the problem is there's too many people in the hospital. And I can't do much about that. I've been asking for a fire break. I've been talking to my MLA. I've been talking to as many people as I can. We've been getting ourselves all vaccinated here. We wear masks. We do everything we can. But, you know, that's there's not much else we can do. Um, and I know healthcare workers are exhausted. I mean, I'm tired, so I can't imagine what people who are working in hospitals feel like. And so I thought there has to be a way for us to be able to to nourish them or to show them that we are grateful. And so I reached out to uh, Julie Van Rosendahl um, and said, I, I've got this idea. Could we maybe do this? What do you think? Has anybody approached you? And then she said, actually, yeah, somebody said that, you know, they've got some money together and they, and they want to do this. So do you want me to put you in touch? And so we did kind of a test run a couple of weekends ago and took 50 meals up to um, the foothills. And, uh, and after we did that, people kept friends that she had told kept donating money. And so I thought, well, let's put a package together, um, uh, for Thanksgiving week, um, and see what, see what happens. And, uh, we sent it out to our newsletter subscribers last Wednesday and within less than 24 hours, 500 meals were purchased. And then as soon as it hit social media, it has just exploded um, as of this morning, we're a little bit over 5,000 meals have been purchased by about 1,200 orders. It's amazing. Like this is beyond what we imagined and the messages that people are including when they buy um, the order, their messages of thanks and support are really heartwarming and just, yeah, it, it's amazing. People really want to do something. Um, 
And uh, I think they really want to connect and baking food and nourishing people. You know, you bring your friends a casserole when they're tired or when something terrible has happened. It's a way of connecting. And so I feel really lucky that we can facilitate the gratitude, but we are, uh, yeah, this morning we're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, we've got to figure out how we're going to actually be able to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember you know, this is, this really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about, except for just overwhelming support. I remember we, uh, we just lost a dear friend of the show, Julie Roar to cancer a short time ago. And, um, with Julie's blessing, we recently announced a, a, a Julie Roar scholarship and a golf tournament to fund it. And, it was like I was like, thank God we had an email address at the very least set up. And we've just hired, as a matter of fact, a, a director of operations for the tournament because the, the support was like, I just didn't know what to do with it. it. People talk about drinking from a fire hose. That's what it was like, because people just wanted to find a way, an outlet uh, to mm-hmm. express either their support or their grief or their you know adoration or whatever the case may be. And this sounds like the exact same thing. I mean, 5,000 meals and counting, right? I mean, I, I yes. would imagine you're not looking to turn off the tap here. So are, are, are there, I mean, are there excess meals in the sense that you might start looking elsewhere with regards to who the recipients might be? Or what's the plan longer term here? Well, um, I've already had people from the emergency departments reach out to me, um, people who are in touch with ambulance drivers as well, too, asking yeah. if, um, I mean, everybody, I think, who's working in healthcare is exhausted. Um, so, yeah, for this week, we've committed to delivering Thanksgiving dinners to all four hospitals yeah. uh, on Sunday. And, uh, and then I think this week will also be us figuring out a plan for um, how we can... Uh, deliver the rest of the meals and when. I mean, this is a good news, bad news story, right? I mean, uh, the good news is that there is this much support, but it's also going to be going on for a while. Um, um, If the modeling, which we have yet to see, but what we've heard is, you know, the month of October may be actually worse than um, September. So, um, yeah, so I think some support will be needed for a while. And, you know, I think of and I might be stating the obvious here, but I think of, you know, people like hospital security guards that have had mm-hmm. to put up with so much. I think of people that are cleaning in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. I mean, have they ever been more important? I don't think so. You know, what about like, I'm so glad you mentioned paramedics and I saw firefighters the other day that were out on a ladder truck and they've got their masks on and you think how they've been putting on PPE to respond to every call that could be COVID. And I mean, you know, you you talk about how, I mean, how can we, we try to walk miles in the shoes. We had Dr. Raj Sherman on yesterday in ER doc. We've got Mm -hmm. ICU docs, respiratory therapists, you know, is a real talker and we try to pick their brains. I try to keep the interviews, you know, it's, it's a tough fine line to walk because you really want to pick their brains and have the public have all of us really understand what we need to understand at the same time i feel like it's just another drain on them like now they're doing media interviews right and 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 the exhaustion is not just from being on their feet and having icus that are packed to capacity or past capacity um but also everything else that goes with it right the the politics behind it and the public discourse and the protests and every and i just I mean, I hope that at the end of this, when we look back, and I know that this, as a matter of fact, I'm confident this will be the case, but people have such a greater appreciation for people that serve the public. And what an amazing way uh, that you've made possible for this to happen. Tell us about these notes, because my understanding is that these donors, people that are that are visiting your website, devourcatering.com, we're talking to the owner, Javel Schuster. Uh, what are you seeing on these notes that people are writing while they make their donation? 
Uh, well, some people are, because uh, we've explained that each unit is approximately 50 people. Some people have just bought 50 meals outright and dedicated it to an ent entire unit. Um, one message in particular, I think of a family bought 50 and they want it to go to the South Health campus because that is the ICU where their mother was uh, when she passed away. And um, they want to thank everybody and let them know um, how wonderful the care was that she received. Other people have uh, come out of certain ICUs and want to thank people for the care and, and let them know that if it hadn't been for the care they'd received, they wouldn't necessarily be with us still. Um, and then other people just, they just want people to know that they shouldn't, they don't want them to feel alone. They don't want to feel uh, them to feel that people aren't seeing or um supporting what they're doing it's so hard right we can't do what they do um they have a really specialized skill set obviously um so only they can do what they're doing and so i think what this has tapped into is that people are literally hungry for a way to connect and and show their appreciation we've been kind of trapped as far as not being able to to show people what we want to do and how we feel we are getting between what I'm assuming is your phone and your notifications and then your landline ring. I get anxiety at how many people are trying to contact you right now. Is this your, like, I thought that my inbox is a disaster. Hoyles can attest to that, but like, is this your everyday morning or is, is this a little no, bit? Out of, no, like, no. Like, are, are you the most popular person in Canada or what's going on right now? Oh my gosh, Ryan, that's crazy. But I just, you know, Tapping into gratitude, I yeah. know maybe it sounds cliche, maybe, no. it, but I mean, that's it is it is the key to so many things, and I just feel so lucky um, that that we can figure out how to do it. I am nervous that we are we are. I have to say, we are in a bit of shock. My awesome colleague Jasmine, who is behind <laughs> me here. Uh, yes, whose phone started blowing up on Sunday. Jasmine's, um, like, Jasmine's like, do not call me over for the interview. I have 5,000 turkey dinners to make. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. these are just, by the way, you're also, can can I just point out, because this, hey, this one's on the house, my friend, uh, but you're also open for business, right? Like this is, like you're not yes. just doing the ICU, ICU stuff. Uh, no. You're also running a catering company. And I would imagine that Thanksgiving, especially a Thanksgiving during, uh, what whether it's a voluntary shutdown or otherwise, a lot of people are going to be limiting their Thanksgiving gatherings for obvious reasons right now. Are you on that front um, seeing a bit of an uptick in business? Is there, I, I know you. Well, it's, it's tacky to ask if it's a silver lining, but you know what I mean? Well, actually, no, it, it's a little bit different. We're in a, we're in a little bit of a different spot than we have been in other sets of restrictions because in other sets of restrictions, indoor dining was closed. Yeah. And so people didn't have the option um, of going to a restaurant uh, or sitting on a patio, um, everybody did have to stay home. So takeout and curbside delivery were kind of the, that's what everybody was offering. But currently um, restaurants are open and the weather has been lovely here in Calgary anyway. And so patios are open. And I think people, you know, this is our second Thanksgiving in this kind of reduce your contacts kind of state. And I think last year, some of the online celebration experiences that we offered were really well received because people were like, let's make the best of this. This is good. You know, and now we're doing it for the second time. I don't think there's quite the same enthusiasm for that. Um, and we're also seeing, even with, we have been 
doing deliveries for like virtual meetings where it's a working meeting with a meal. Everybody's doing the meeting on Zoom, but we deliver the meal to each recipient. And so they're eating the same thing while they're in the meeting. And um, I mean, I think it's a great idea. And, And we did a lot of that last year, but the, pardon the pun, the appetite for that, I think has declined as well too. And I think that might just be, I mean, everybody's everybody's tired. We're not uh, all functioning with the same energy levels that that we were even a year ago. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, and that was part of me thinking, okay, you know, we've got to try to think of another way to, you know, use our amazing engine and keep our team engaged um, because I don't know if the online, I, I don't know if the online thing is going to, keep going and be as popular knows? as it was who even knows yeah i don't even i mean it's exactly. just like that that feels like that should be just the slogan for life right now who knows uh, <laughs> we'll just we'll just keep walking we'll just keep plotting yeah. away um so i know you know people have indicated that, and and they don't you know this is like we can use this as a bit of a psa a bit of a public service announcement you know people are not encouraged to just show up at hospitals um, with baked goods and meals and uh, they, they can't accept them for obvious reasons including safety reasons it's the same reason by the way that no television or radio hosts will ever eat what you drop off at the station everybody so <laughs> save yourselves the flour and the sugar and the chocolate chips because those things get dumped i know that's tough to hear but it's a fact uh however yeah. a reputable outlet like yourself will be able to gain access to drop off meals that are vetted you're obviously operating under a business license and everything else have you been able to gauge the reaction of the recipients of these expressions of gratitude and support have you heard from healthcare workers firsthand mm-hmm. so uh, we immediately heard from uh people who were at the foothills we just we've only done one of these so far right so um we did receive some immediate thanks and and great feedback from some nurses and also from the manager of that ICU. She said that everyone was just really touched and, um, and amazed. We included some cards that some grade six kids made some thank you cards that, uh, kids had made as well. And, and some personal cards from some of the people who, um, put some money into it. So they said that, yeah, knowing that other people were thinking about them was, was definitely uplifting. And then since we have, um, posted and lots of people have seen the package some of the messages on social media from nurses um, who haven't even received any packages but just seeing that uh, we want to offer this and seeing how much support it has received they have said that you know I had a note yesterday from somebody who said that this has been the most challenging month of her entire life Um, and just seeing that there are good people who do wish good things and want to do something to show their gratitude is, is making her feel better. Hmm. Um, yeah. Or well, our, our live chats going off right now, which is great. Uh, including just a bunch of emojis of hearts, uh, <laughs> and, and people just saying, you know, this is so appreciated. What a wonderful idea, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and, and that was probably disrespectful. Uh, yada, yada, yada means, wonderful comments mm-hmm. and uh and then and and i like this as well like kimberly you know for example says there are so many healthcare workers in all your housekeeping food services administrative assistance maintenance people protective services you know all of them essential which is amazing uh put it this way javel we knew that we wanted to talk to you i saw you mentioned julie van rosendahl of course a, a nationally known food writer and just a, a wonderful person in her own right amazing uh i saw her pushing this out 
uh, and we knew we wanted to talk to you, but I want to tell you this because you know you you mentioned that you know you're an audience member, you're a fan of the show. We your name was submitted a whole bunch of times for positive reflections, you know, from the team at Kubi oh. Energy. We do that on Mondays, um, kind of a way we get our week started off on the right foot. And a whole bunch of people wrote in to say, this is what's right with people. This is something that deserves the spotlight. And so we're thrilled to book you on the show. I want to let Real Talkers know they can check out devourcatering.com if they want to participate. Uh, the owner, Javal Schuster, our guest and a valued uh, we're going to call you a real talker and, and, and we're oh. going to proudly walk with that today. Thanks for making time for us. We'll let you get back to the now 97 calls that you've missed in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> thank you very much, Ryan. Right. And thank you to your whole team for the show. Oh, you got it. Awesome. Jamal. Thanks for everything. Thanks. That means a lot. That fills our bucket. We appreciate that. Very cool stuff. Devourcatering.com. A lot of people are, are checking in from other cities as well, including uh, on Twitter on our hashtag RealTalkRJ saying this sounds like a great idea in my city as well. Might have to get in the ear of the uh, team at Prairie Catering, our partners here in Edmonton. I think that's something I know Jimmy would be down for that. They've got their big Thanksgiving stuff going on as well. Uh, speaking of prairie catering, I like, can it be Thursday already so we can get to eat your words by prairie catering? We're just sitting on this video that we just, everybody in Alberta has already watched it. Um, and it's not funny. It's actually maddening, but it's telling. And, uh, that's coming up on Thursday. Anyway, eat your words presented by the team at prairie catering. Speaking of Kubi energy, why not give them a shout out right now? You know them. I mean, they're, they're easily Western Canada's most recognizable solar installer. And I want to encourage you to give them a follow on Instagram. Instagram is back up. And that means that if you don't already follow them at Kubi energy, K U B Y. Now is a great time to do it. They've got some cool tips on their tips and tricks. I learn something every time I check in, but they also provide photos of some of the installations they're doing. And a lot of them are, are pretty cool. Look at that. There's the post about the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest. We'll be updating you on the progress of that, by the way. Joey's home. Some work they're doing there at Friesen Brothers, another partner of ours. I mean, just doing a ton of really cool stuff. Follow them on Instagram. And if you want to ask a question or two about how you can achieve your renewable energy or even net zero goal, you can find them online at kubienergy.ca. The following paid advertisement does not necessarily represent the views of Ryan Jesperson, Real Talk, or Relay Communications Group Incorporated. It's time for a fresh perspective. Edmonton deserves a leader who will work for you and with you. Someone who understands the strengths of our community to do things better and faster. Cheryl Watson has built her career on results, not promises. On October 18th, vote Watson for mayor and together let's build a city that works. This ad is paid for by the Watson for Mayor campaign. I was telling you a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to hang out with Chris Kozowski, the founder of Park Power. Uh, the guy is just a remarkable entrepreneur. The way that his mind works, you know, I was like, tell me a little bit. Of, I said, 10% of all electricity proceeds, Kubi donates to nonprofits in the community. He goes, yeah, he's like, you know, people have a choice where they're going to get their internet, electricity, natural gas. He goes, we're the friendly local utilities provider. We want to reiterate that to people. And what's more local than supporting local? I love it. I love the way they roll. Speaking, by the way, of Kubi Energy as well, Chris wanted me to remind you that Park Power has an initiative where people whose solar is pushing back to the grid are benefiting with some great incentives exclusive to Park Power. You can learn more about that online at parkpower.ca. And don't forget, when you sign up, 
Use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. Whether it's a commercial or a residential account, they're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. I always like to say they're going to buy you dinner. 70 bucks, a couple of nice entrees, you know, add the lobster tail, you know, 70 bucks, you know, add mushrooms, add extra garlic butter, whatever you like. It's on Park Power at parkpower.ca. So yeah, Instagram's back, Facebook's back, WhatsApp is back back although i haven't checked my phone today is it still back oils we're still we're still online everything's still good yep still all right. still all engines are firing still yep. churning along all right but for a while yesterday things went sideways i loved this tweet i had to retweet this one i had i had to push this one out. i thought this was pretty funny it, it sort of said everything you need to know about facebook these days as soon as it popped across my feed, I thought, yeah, I think that this is kind of the key takeaway today. This tweet from John Haltwanger, who said, Facebook is down. Quick, let's revive democracy and get everybody vaccinated while we've still got a chance. It would be funny if it wasn't so telling and tragic. We wanted to make sense of this. Like, what does it actually mean? What happened yesterday? What's conspiracy theory and what's valid? I mean, this as a Facebook whistleblower, right? Former uh, Facebook employee Francis Hagen is in Washington, D.C. right now testifying after talking to Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes about why she came forward with a series of damaging revelations about Facebook, including the fact that they are knowingly doing harm, that it's a company premise that we're safe book to make it more of a safe space. Did I call it safe book. It's the antithesis of that. But yeah. what if we launched safe book? Nobody would sign up. That's the whole fucking point. Nobody wants safe book. If Facebook were to become more safe, they'd lose profit. People would spend less time on the site. They'd click on fewer ads, and and so they don't. Dr. Gordon Gow is a lecturer at the London School of Economics. He was director of the graduate program in media and communications regulation and policy. Now a professor of communication and academic director of the Master of Arts in Communications and Technology in the Media Technology Studies Unit at the University of Alberta. Grateful to have you here this morning, doctor. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Were you one of the, the, the probably, to be honest, hundreds of millions affected yesterday when facebook and instagram and whatsapp went offline or was this like me uh i was told by a student actually in the morning that it was offline um i'm not too active on those platforms anymore uh, a little bit on twitter uh but uh but because of the toxicity of the platforms i i generally stay away from them now and my research is actually looking at alternative social media platforms as a as a safe book alternative to to what's become you know a cesspool really uh unfortunately yeah this is that was my freudian slip for the day or at least the first one we'll see what happens between now i like and- it it makes <laughs> it's but it's what we need right we, but it's like let's know, be honest if so, a platform called SafeBook, i wouldn't even click on it that sounds like the lousiest experience possible well you know we have to think about social media it's like the university is right if you think that the university has a single thing you're missing the point. The university is a complex institution with many different activities going on. Um, and at any given moment, um, you know, there's, you know, the students may be up to some, but no good over there on that side of the campus, but there's lots of good stuff going on. So, you know, the stories that I heard about yesterday's, um, you know, uh, incident with Facebook, they've had it and they're having a terrible week. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the reckoning is coming in maybe, but 
the stories I heard that were really, I think, most significant were biz, small businesses that operate on those platforms that um, are doing, you know, reaching out to their customers and, um, you know, essentially making their living through this platform. And, and they were completely offline for the day. So there's lots going on there that uh, doesn't have to do with the toxicity. It's just a practical use of a platform for communications. And what this outage really uh, demonstrates is that, that Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram, all owned by Facebook, of course, is a single point of failure, right? And once that went down, this huge digital ecosystem that supports small businesses and large businesses was out with it. And, and there's no recourse because we rely so much on this now that when it failed, we realize there is no plan B here. What are we going to do? And we kind of stumbled into this situation, haven't we? we? We This was never planned from the beginning. Facebook was something that was started in a dorm in 2004. Zuckerberg had no idea this was going to become the thing it's become. And now they're having to deal with the reality here. Uh, this is uh, much bigger than anybody had ever anticipated. And, and all of these problems, the whistleblowers, revelations, I speak, you know, speaking truth to power here is... Uh, and I give her credit for, for having the um, courage to do that. Uh, I can't imagine what. Yeah, what I mean, saying. we're, uh, you know, we're, as you can see here, we're, you know, watching this as, I mean, you have my full attention, Doc, obviously, but we're also watching testimony with captions on. And there, and there she is, you know, on D.C. and Capitol Hill, a U.S. Senate hearing. And I oftentimes, you know, try to put myself in that seat like what's going through that person's mind where you you, you have this courage of conviction about something. Um, but what a whistleblower signs up for, uh, it feels like particularly in the United States. I don't know why it just these are these are the highest profile ones. These are, you know, the biggest companies in the world that we're talking about here in particular uh, tech companies. This is this is a little bit different than I think if it was, you know, something to do with a, a big bank or, or some you know big pharma where somebody might think, well, you know, I don't I don't have a prescription that's manufactured by that pharmaceutical company. I'm not sure this is relevant to me. It almost feels like this when you're talking about privacy breaches, ethics, when you're talking anything to do with big social media platforms, it kind of hits everybody square between the eyes. And you make a really good point about reliance on these platforms. I mean, I mean, I saw, you know, one social media manager that I follow on Twitter yesterday joking probably so she didn't put her head through the drywall i would imagine she's pretty frustrated she said currently spending all afternoon figuring out my new career i mean people had to <laughs> do a bit of a reality check yesterday with regards to reliance yeah you know there, we've never found ourselves in this situation i think you know in terms of our communications infrastructure uh this is new territory for everybody. Uh, on the one hand, you know, social media has democratized uh, the communications system, the media system. We can all, you know, user-generated content, we can all be producers and consumers, and in a sense, it's kind of democratized it. But but it's really evolved in an environment where there's very little regulatory oversight or even accountability, apart from Facebook's accountability to its shareholders. And and again, we've stumbled into it. it. This is an accidental mega infrastructure that's been created. And, you know, increasingly, not just the public, but the regulators, the governments, uh, and particularly in Europe, where they're really, I think, moving quickly on this, are starting to ask that question, you know, should, this, should these platforms be regulated? 
Um, and, and how are we going to do that? And, and, and it's, it's tricky because, um, you know, you're dealing with um, a different kind of creature than the sort of mass media broadcasting industry, right, which was licensed by a regulator and accountable to a broadcasting act and, and standards and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, um, in the social media environment, it's evolved on the internet. And, the, and one of the fundamental principles of the internet was permissionless innovation, right? Yeah. Anybody could create something, put it online. And that's what Facebook is. So how to push back against that tide uh, to say, no, we're going to regulate this when it's been accepted practice that no, we don't regulate the internet. Right? You remember, you remember back difficult. when, I mean, prof, you will obviously with years of experience under your belt, you remember when like literally, at least for a time, the biggest concern about the internet. I don't know. Maybe I feel like Sam might remember this, what the website was called, but the recipe on how to build a bomb, what was called like the terrorist handbook or something like that. And everybody was like, you know, you got to beware of the world. Remember that Hoyles? You got to beware of the World Wide web. There's a recipe for how to build a bomb. And, and I'm not, you know, sort of minimizing that, but also now we look at Facebook, they're talking about, uh, you know, people's personal data and potential data breaches, privacy uh, intrusions, Facebook's own cryptocurrency, Facebook influencing elections. I mean, like it's so much bigger. I mean, how many people I'm not looking to find out, but how many people are really going to look, seek out and then and then, you know, instructions on how to build a bomb, let alone detonate it. But when you start talking about personal data, privacy, currency, elections, democracy, all of a sudden now it becomes a bit more of an eyebrow raiser. Mm hmm. Seems like it's you know it sucked everything into its orbit, right? Yeah. I mean, all of these issues have become part of the, the the critical conversation about Facebook, and it's kind of captured everything, including you know the traditional media industries have all been captured by this thing. Uh, I think there's a couple pieces here to think about. One is is the fact that uh, indeed there is there's misinformation, and then there's disinformation on these platforms. Misinformation is maybe people with, um, you know, with honest convictions, but the information they're purveying is just, is bad, or it's, it's, you know, it's not factual or, or dangerous in some cases, but it's not necessarily a malicious uh, organized effort. Then you have disinformation campaigns that would come out of groups like the Internet Research Agency in Russia and in other parts of the world, probably China as well, you know, and the United States, I'm sure, is engaged in its own information warfare campaigns. And, and these are organized campaigns, uh, and we see this with the election meddling, where there are state actors who are deliberately seeding social media with this information to sow dissent, right, because they realize that that is, uh, you know, that is in fact a way to start to break up and weaken societies, and that's, it's an information warfare campaign is essentially what it is. Now, Facebook has gotten to a point where it is so big that they uh, that just to manage this stuff, uh, they have to rely on algorithms and they have to rely on uh, machine learning. And of course, what that does is that captures all kinds of stuff that isn't misinformation or disinformation. So they end up with these wide nets that capture too much. Uh, and I think one of the things they're struggling to do is, is to figure out actually how to moderate effectively and how to set the terms and conditions of their moderation policies so that they're addressing the, you know, the kinds of issues that are of most concern while allowing, you know, a moderate degree of latitude in terms of free speech, right? 
um, so that you are, you know, you are not capturing stuff that's otherwise maybe critical or maybe controversial, but it's not toxic speech. And until I think Facebook takes the position to say, you know what, we're more than just a technology company. We're actually a media company uh, and we need to act like one. I think until they can acknowledge that and take responsibility for that and be held accountable to that, this is just going to continue. And they're going to keep playing this sort of uh, shell game, you know, saying, oh, we'll do, we're trying this, we're trying that. And we know from the whistleblower, sure, they did some stuff before the 2020 election, but then they pulled back after the election in the U.S., right? And then January 6th happens. And then, oh, we do something over here, and then they pull back. It's, yeah, sure, you know, who's that feeding? That's, you know, that's a public relations exercise, and that's, you know, appeasing maybe the, the shareholders. But it's not really solving the long-term problem we have here. I don't know why I'm thinking of Charles Barkley, you know, way back in the day, I think he was still with the Phoenix Suns at the time. And and uh, I mean, he's one of my all time uh, favorite, you know, basketball greats. But he, he was not immune from controversy through the course of his career. And you remember he had that unfortunate incident where he spit into the crowd and it hit a little girl. And I remember a lot of the controversy around that. And Charles Barkley, one of the famous statements he made was, I'm not a role model. I'm an athlete. I'm not a role model. And, and a lot of people push back on that, whether you like it or not, you might be a role model. Kind of, I don't know why I'm thinking of that right now, but in the context of Facebook, it, it almost seems like, you know, this company that's some, somewhat reticent to take, uh, you know, more responsibility than it might be obliged to take. You get that sense? Well, yeah. And I think that Barkley example is good. It's accountability, right? He may not want to be a role model, but the fact is he is a role model and he has, he's a, has to be held accountable for his actions, particularly when it's covered by the media, right? And um, Facebook is the same way. Uh, you know, I, I, the other thing about Facebook, just on that point, I think on the accountability piece, part of it may be the fact that, you know, it is a, it's a large monopoly. It, it owns this space. I mean, the space is literally divided up, you know, for North Americans and Europeans, for the most part, the space is divided up between Facebook holdings and Twitter, you know, and maybe a couple of, uh, well, Amazon's in there, of course, but you, there's no other game in town, right? So you're stuck on Facebook. So in a way you're cap, we're all captured by Facebook as well. Uh, there's, it's very difficult to leave Facebook and maintain your social network. Uh, people rely on it heavily for family, as I say, business and other connections. And and economists call that network effects, right? So that the more people that are on Facebook, the more people that you can talk and share with makes it more valuable. Now, uh, this the telephone system had this problem when we first introduced mobile phones, you know, um, and what they introduced, the, the regulator, the CRTC said, well, we're going to introduce something called number portability so that if you get fed up with TELUS and you go to Rogers, you can take your phone number with you so you don't lose all your contacts. And that's interoperability idea is now increasingly being discussed around social media platforms. And uh, Europe's European Union is looking at this, for instance. Should we be able to just take our data, you know, and say, you know what, Facebook? sorry, I've had enough with you. I'm going to this other platform, me, we, or what have you. And I'm taking all my stuff with me. My friends can stay on Facebook. If they want to see me on, if they want to see me on this other platform, they can connect through their Facebook accounts to see me, but, but I can take my, my, take my toys, if you will, and go play in a different sandbox. And we can't do that right now. And Facebook has made, and there's, you know, evidence to show that Facebook has made deliberate efforts to make it 
difficult for people to move their data off or even to share across competing platforms. And so they control this as a monopoly and they and they keep us captured. I think one of the important things looking at this going forward is going to be whether, you know, do we need to break up Facebook? Do we need to force it to be interoperable with other platforms? Do we need to give users more control over our data and, and allow us to um, say what, have a greater say in what we want done with our data and, and to take our data and go elsewhere if we're not happy? And that may drive a company like Facebook into more accountability, right, to serve the customers and to be more responsive to these kinds of concerns. It's a classic business model, though. Hey, I mean, I think of like anybody that's ever, you know, been pissed off with their bank. They don't get the line of credit or the loan. They, they're like, I'm going to take my banking somewhere else. The banker's like, are you? <laughs> because it's, what a pain in the ass to move your banking. And why would Facebook make it any easier for anybody? Right. There's, there's no incentive to do it. And, you know, if I was on the board of directors, I wouldn't be voting in favor of that either. It's the logic of the business. But the reality is, you know, regulators are there to ensure a level playing field and to protect the public interest. And clearly the public interest is not being well served right now um, by these large platforms. So we, we really need to look at this. And this is, this is a long history, uh, Ryan, in, in the communications a business uh, going all the way back to the Telegraph, uh, Western Union. Um, they owned all of the Telegraph infrastructure at the time in the United States, and they were election meddling back in the early late 1800s and early 1900s. They had to be broken up. Uh, AT&T in the United States, same thing, right? So giant monopoly, Great for a while, then it starts to abuse its powers, and the government has to get in there and break it up. But then, but then you're—I mean, this, this is where this is where like this is where I wish that we were like having poutine and beers and everything because I just want to talk to you. But I just like want to dig into this because I'm also not sure. And trust me, this is like I understand the, the privacy concerns. I understand the safety concerns. I understand we haven't even talked about Instagram yet. I mean, everybody talking about the that in particular with teenage girls, although I know that, you know, we can broaden the conversation there, but it can be dangerous with regards to self-esteem and self-image and self-worth. And trust me, I've got all the time in the world for that. And I acknowledge these as issues, but I'm also not so sure. And this is where the water gets a little muddy for me. I'm not sure how I feel about governments coming in and breaking up successful companies and and maybe just on the surface uh that that assertion might infuriate some people considering the context but i think that's a really slippery slope do you it's 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 extremely difficult there's not a big appetite for it right now in the united states to do it uh again europeans are less reticent on that um but there's some geopolitics at play you know silicon valley is of course you know, in the United States and cynics would say, well, Europe's, you know, playing some politics here and so on. But um, there, you know, they, you know, monop breaking up the monopoly is probably, you know, a scorched earth kind of policy. Uh, it's difficult. It's complicated. Microsoft has dealt with this in the past as well. Um but there are other ways to, to try to address this before you go down that road. And as I said, like things like data portability. So that ability to, to take your data and go elsewhere, which, which wouldn't necessarily break up Facebook, but it might, um, it might le level the playing field so that other competing platforms that have different policies, different governance, different terms of service, different bargains with their users could, 
could be more attractive, right? Could be destinations for people who said, I've had enough with Facebook, I want to go elsewhere. That's very difficult to do. But if you make that easier to do for people, um, you may see those platforms take, um, you know, take, grow more people on there and you may see Facebook come in line. You know, it's like having one gas station versus having two gas stations, right? If you've got gas isn't a great analogy because the prices are always the same, but, but you get the point, right? When you have a competitor in that space and it's easy to go to that competitor, you make it, the regulars make it easier for you to go to that competitor. Uh, there's a greater chance there that you will see um, that, uh, you know, that they will be responding to the needs of their users. Um, I, I, uh, I gotta be honest. I appreciate you bringing up the gas pricing and gas station analogies. Cause it, it, it just opens the door beautifully uh, for an, for my next question. People will all, always say, I mean, we're, we're coming into the Thanksgiving weekend and, uh, you know, some people are going to go, well, some folks might be hitting the highway to go to the family farm or some folks might be getting in their last camping trip. You know, anyway, the point is people are going to be hitting the highway and but, you know, to no one's surprise, gas prices are going to jump. And then all of the executives are going to say one question by the media again, that it has nothing to do with it. And it's just the free market. And there's not collusion among the big companies. And you know, nobody really believes it. And, and, and then we're left to wonder, are we? Conspiracy theorists, I mean, are, are, are we trying to find something that's not there? Yesterday, when all of this went down, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp goes offline right amid allegations that the company, you know, company is knowingly operating and, and doing harm. A lot of people wondered, like, is, is there the digital equivalent of paper shredding going on right now? I'm, <laughs> I'm curious for your assessment. This was Alex Hearn yesterday tweeting about this. Alex is the tech editor for The Guardian, uh, said a bunch of friends have texted me. And, and Doc, I'll look for your assessment on this, uh, asking for a basic explanation as to what the hell happened to, to knock off all of Facebook. So Facebook accidentally, we assume, says Alex Hearn. Uh, sent an update to deep level routing protocol on the Internet that said basically, hey, we don't have any servers anymore. And normally this would be quite easy to fix. You just send another update saying, oh, don't worry, we have servers there here and things still break. And it takes a while for the message to spread to all corners of the Internet. Egg on your face, but livable. But Facebook runs everything through Facebook. So when its servers were booted off the Internet, it also booted off the ability to send the follow-up message and the ability to log into the system that would send the follow-up message and the ability to use the smart card door lock on the front door to the building that contains the servers that control the system that sends the follow-up message and the messaging service you use to contact the head of physical security to tell them they need to hightail it to the data center with a physical key to override the smart card door lock on the front door. Kind of a, 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 a layperson's way to understand what happened, but that doesn't indicate that there was a whole bunch of data destruction and paper shredding going on. So what do you think was yeah. the actual cause? Would you agree with that assessment or do you think there might be something more nefarious to it? Uh, well, we'll never know. Conspiracy theorists, of course, will love this yeah. um, and do whatever. I, I saw tweets about all oh, the military was going into the, you know, Facebook server uh, farms and, <laughs> and taking taking computers uh and somebody tweeted back said yeah you know they all walked in there with you know boxes of usb sticks or downloading facebook data in a matter of hours so uh, you know i don't know i mean it, it's coincidence um i could certainly believe that account from alex hearn which is that you know facebook's from security standpoint uh among other things, they would be running, they run everything kind of through their own proprietary infrastructure before it gets onto the public internet. 
And so it's kind of like locking your keys in the car, right? It's like once once you if somebody has screwed up this update, uh, the whole system you're locked out of the whole system. And I mean that's I think that's you know that's believable. Uh, the timing of it, who knows? Um, I wouldn't want to speculate too much, but certainly um, certainly it's not been a good week for them. And uh, and this is maybe one of those situations, you know, where everything just everything's just going badly, and it's just like, ah, uh, here we go. What is this, right? And so, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to put too much emphasis on on it being a deliberate or a nefarious act on Facebook's part. All right, no, I appreciate the the measured analysis, Doc. That's why we bring you on. Uh, so so Francis Hagen, who's who's testifying today before the Senate subcommittee, uh, the hearing's titled "Protecting Kids Online," and I thought that it was. Somewhat uh, noteworthy uh, in her 60 Minutes appearance with Scott Pelley, where she said that she loves Facebook. She said, I, I want to help the social media company not harm it, which was an interesting take. So she'll be talking in part, testifying in part, and she has done already uh, to a certain degree about the company's research into Instagram's effect on the mental health of young users. And this is what I want to wrap on, because, you know, our demographic research tells us all voluntarily supplied, by the way, um, that we have a lot of young uh, audience members uh, in particular, tweens and young adults, but also young parents or parents of kids who I know Mm. will be particularly interested in your analysis here on this final question. So she tells CBS News on Sunday that the company has prioritized growth over safety. Um, do you agree with you know the assessment that Facebook and other platforms, including Instagram, are becoming more dangerous? And if so, we've talked a little bit about what the onus on the company might look like, and even to a certain degree, what the onus on government might look like. But what should people, what should citizens take away from this lesson? Well, I think it comes back to the arrogance of the platforms and, and the underlying business model that drives them. Their their underlying business model is to make profit for the shareholders. When Facebook went public in 2012 or whatever it was, right, the bargain changed with the with its users. Uh, it was a kind of a fun social networking place, but once, you know, big money got involved, the game changed. And so what, you know, what we need to be mindful of is that while it does offer us a lot of value and there's a lot of great things that these platforms do, um, the underlying, you know, um, motivation there is ultimately to sell advertising, and and the, and the way they sell advertising is they, they they take our data, they follow us, not necessarily individually, but they can get they know us a lot about us from our profiles, um, and and they also know that the stuff that keeps us online, that keeps us scrolling and clicking, is not it, it's the it's the it's the you know, it's the stuff that's um, tantalizingly, you know, um, maddening or it's the it's the bad stuff. Right. It's it's the junk food. It's the equivalent of junk food. Right. It, it keeps us scrolling. And the Stanford Research Lab, where a lot of these developers came out of, you know, pioneered these techniques to keep us on. And so there are there is a movement now within the field of designers and others to look at more ethical design on these platforms and to revisit the algorithms and the design uh, to try to address this. But until you, until you uh, challenge that underlying business model, I, I think ultimately whatever keeps us hooked is going to, you know, is going to be what they want to feed us. So maybe there's some equivalent to, you know, the nutrition labels on our food, 
that tells us when we're eating junk food that at least makes us aware that what we're consuming here might not be good for us and maybe we should look for an alternative. Maybe there's something like that that we can implement for young people as part of a critical digital literacy training program. Mm. And, and ultimately, that's what it comes down to, right? Being critical, digi- being digitally literate and being critical of what you're doing and, and saying, you know what, this is not the healthy thing I should be doing right now. Um, and maybe I should put the device down or do something else. And that's going to rely on our education system and, and parents and others to do that ultimately. Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know why I just, oh man, I don't know why I just took that last part as a punch to the gut right now. We're going to have to rely on our education system. Oh, great. Uh, no, I mean, I have lots to say about that. Yeah, I bet you do. So do I. Uh, let's talk after 2023 about our education system. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Shout out to all the educators out there doing an amazing job, including at a post-secondary level. I really appreciate you talking about digital literacy. I think that digital literacy and financial literacy, and, and, and those are obviously braided together, uh, need to be better taught at junior high and high school. I mean, at elementary school levels, quite frankly, um, yeah. before I, you know, I, I remember, you know, in, in my BA communication studies, I remember talking a lot about bubble gum for the brain. And that's exactly what you're talking about. This sort of junk food type content. Uh, it looks like Jason Bazell, I think it is one of our real talkers here. I think he's a former student of yours. He tells me that he, he, he seems to remember that you were more of a, a cocktail guy than a beers guy. Is, is that, I think you can learn a lot <laughs> from somebody by, by what they order. Uh, what's your, what's your go-to cocktail? If this is true, if this Intel well, is correct. I'm not sure where Jason would have got that from. I, I'm more of a beers guy. I'm more oh. of a craft beers guy. Oh, not okay. to be stuck up about it. but No, that's not stuck up. What's what's your go-to you know, craft beer right now? Oh, well, there's lots. But, you know, um, Megawatt IPA, which is, uh, what is that, uh, Town Square Brewery in Edmonton, I think. Mm, mm. You're, you're getting a big uh, double thumbs up from our technical producer who's a big craft beer guy. Yeah. So there we go. Uh, hey, Doc, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Dr. Gordon Gow, the University of Alberta media and technology expert. Appreciate your insight on this, especially on. I mean, this is developing news. We wanted to go get a person who really understood. And we figured a lecturer at the uh, London School of Economics might do the trick. You have delivered in a big way. So thank you for this. OK, my pleasure. Take care. Yeah, you bet. So that's a solid, solid microbrew. You've had that one. There's a like a you, you, you like blew back in your chair when he said that the, the megawatt is in my regular rotation. It is. Yeah. It is a staple in my fridge. They, absolutely. I, I know what he's talking about. The can design on it looks yeah, really good. It is. Um, but this is where our discussion will stop because they're not a current sponsor. and We can go out and grab. No, I'm just, I don't know. You know, what? it's like I talked earlier about, you know, what is it like unvaxxed and vaxxed Israel, Palestine um, and, and all the really divisive ones. Uh, that might also be IPA and non-IPA drinkers. Hey, like this is uh, IPA drinkers are cut from a certain cloth. And there's a lot of people that feel like IPAs are overrepresented on the taps Hmm. right now. I I have no experience in this whatsoever. That's okay. I just, my eyes are glazing. The, uh, the, the, the the anti IPA crowd, you might call them the IP nay. Uh, thank you. Oh. Thank you. I'll be here all week. I'll be here all week. Uh, the IP nays may say that you're missing nothing. Uh, would you agree that IPAs, when it comes to craft beers, it gets somewhat of a divisive. A lot of people feel like breweries are doing too many IPAs these days. Yeah. I I mean, to, to peel back the curtain a bit, it's because they're easy to make. 
uh, IPAs are very easy to make, and you can make a lot of different varieties very quickly by moving around different hops and malts. And if you want to build something like a really nice pilsner or like a really nice lager, takes that time. takes time. That takes a lot of craft. A lot so of time. That's, that's why. People are asking what the next Jespo beer is going to be in partnership with Sea Change, and we'll have to see. We, we've committed to doing one a year. As a matter of fact, I have a meeting with those guys next week. Yeah. So the Jespo Pisco Sour sold out in like three weeks real talkers way to go love you guys amazing it's a small batch release um and uh and so we'll see a lot of people i, I ran into a guy just the other day didn't know him new friend said please tell me you're bringing back the pisco sour i was like i don't know maybe it's like you know surfers have that perfect set that perfect wave that rolls through and then you just have but a memory i don't know let me take this second right now to remind you that our friends at westworld computers your apple experts and ours they're a big reason why real talk happens every single day uh, we told them exactly what we needed from the, the the macbook pros that sarah and i are on the imac that sam is on the ipad that's in front of me the iphone i'm using westworld makes it happen but not just on the sales side like sure they're proud of the return business and the referrals they receive after 40 years of family-owned sales and service but but the authorized service provider apple authorized service is what i know daryl's really proud of as well their apple trained technicians use genuine apple parts so you can trust them with all of your apple devices you can visit them safely in store now they're taking all proper precautions i've seen it firsthand or of course you can find them online book your service appointment now or go shopping at westworld.ca our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you that they've been in the business for more than 20 years and the track record speaks for itself. The return business is what they're really proud of. Mike was telling me they've got several clients that have moved a number of times over the years and keep bringing Eden back to make sure that their landscaping expectations are met. You're talking about dream spaces from modern to traditional to everything in between. The projects at Eden Landscaping have one thing in common, that is happy clients. You can check out some of their portfolio editions, the ultra-modern trapezoid house, natural beauty in Balmoral Heights, or stunning stonework in Sherwood Park at landscapeedmonton.ca. Wanted to take a second to read a couple of emails uh, before we get to, uh, we're going to be talking about kids and vaccines in just a second. And I suspect that this interview is going to see a lot of play because I know that this is something that's on a lot of your minds right now, including mine. And we've got a ton of questions. And if you happen to be joining us live right now, we want to encourage you to be in touch with us on Twitter. Uh, Sarah's keeping an eye on our hashtag Real Talk RJ. I'm also doing my best as is Sarah to keep an eye on our live chat. If you have a question uh, coming up in just a second for Dr. Philippe Legacy Weens, uh, please do send those questions in. Now we're going to get to as many as we can. We know that some of you have unique circumstances you might be on journeys that we don't quite understand, or you might have a question we might not think about. And that's one of the real benefits, I think, of tuning in live as we do Real Talk every weekday morning is that you can contribute to a lot of the editorial direction of these interviews. Uh, Lila wrote in to us yesterday to talk at RyanJesperson.com. She says, I mean, and what a thrill yesterday to, to, to welcome like the 
journalist in Canada for the last half century? Is it fair to call former chief correspondent for CBC News, Peter Mansbridge, one of the I'm not even going to ask, is it fair? It is fair to call him one of the pillars, one of the very few of journalism in Canada over the last 50 years. It was a thrill to welcome him to the show. If you missed it, you can, of course, download it anywhere you get your podcast. You know that. How are you listening to this? Or you can find it on YouTube. Of course, Sarah also tweets out the highlights from our official Twitter account at Real Talk. RJ Lila says, I just listened uh, to that Mansbridge interview, your October 4th show, and he's right. Canadians need to be mindful of how they treat those who step forward to serve an elected office. We need skillful, thoughtful, well-educated people to continue to enter politics and serve their country, their province, their municipality. But, says Lila, some politicians have been teaching us to react as opposed to respond. Top of mind is Jason Kenney. As Alberta's opposition leader, I mean, that earplug stunt in the legislature, who will forget that? If you do, just Google it. Jason Kenney earplugs. Lila says this is just one of many examples. He and many others have been teaching the electorate to vilify the other team as if governance was a team sport above all else. She says, I realize your interview with Mr. Mansbridge was conducted with a limited time span. We went a little bit over, actually. He didn't seem to mind. She says, obviously, all angles cannot be covered in a short time, but this point deserves acknowledgement. Politicians have either personally or via proxies been teaching the electorate how to treat them by their own actions. That from Lila. And I appreciate that point. Some of you thought that uh, Peter Mansbridge was a little too easy on Jason Kenney yesterday. We always welcome your feedback. We, I mean, we appreciate the people that encourage us and say great interview. Uh, Ryan, great questions Um, as much or sometimes even more. We appreciate the critical feedback that says, here's where I think you dropped the ball. Here's where I think you can do better. Here's another point I'd like you to explore. Our email inbox is not simply for those who align completely with the host or the producer of this show. And we know that we have a, a broad and diverse audience and we appreciate you showing up. That includes Deanna who took the time to write in and she says, Ryan, you seem very much to be in favor of uh, vaccine passports and mandatory vaccinations. She says, I urge you to put your prejudice aside and, and consider how we as Canadians are being strong armed, including by Pfizer into using their product. She says, would you accept this for any other product? You know, are you certain, for example, that your beautiful son will be safe with an mRNA vaccine long term, his vaccine's coming and no one can tell you he'll be safe long term, you know, or that he'd be more at risk now, you know, with covid than he would be from the flu. I know that many doctors are OK with this, but why aren't we being given a choice? How much money is Pfizer making? We don't know because we're not allowed to know. Deanna says as a healthy 51 year old woman who's not stopped restrictions, even when the best summer ever was announced. Why can't I have a choice of what goes into my body? I happily choose to be vaccinated with twin wrecks or other vaccines, but I'm extremely hesitant with the mRNA specifically because Canada has contracts with other vaccine manufacturers. But for some reason, only Pfizer and Moderna just can't be given away. Smells to me like maybe companies that are looking for big payouts. Please look deeper into this. I feel like you are being swept away in a current that should not be carrying you. You are supposed to be the current. That from Deanna. Appreciate you listening to the show, Deanna. 
and I appreciate you taking the time to chime in. When you bring up my son, like any other parent, it's going to catch my attention. And we know that a lot of you have questions about kids and vaccines. What about the zero to fives? What about the fives to 11s? What about the 12s to 18s or the 12s to 25s for that matter? Dr. Philippe Legacy Weens is a physician, uh, a medical microbiologist, and an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Our guest this morning, doctor, thank you so much for making time for us. Welcome to the show. You must, I mean, you know, anecdotally, maybe in direct emails to your inbox, maybe in feedback that you're receiving, uh, hear perspectives like Deanna's quite frequently. Oh, for sure. And Deanna's perspective is actually uh, very reasonable. I also get a whole bunch of hate mail uh, and, and really nasty messages that really don't advance the cause, anybody's cause at all. But you know, her, her questions and concerns are legitimate ones. She falls by the sounds of it into a group of people that is hesitant but not opposed, which is actually a very good group to be talking to because those are the ones that we can edu- educate, we can teach about scientific literacy and vaccinology and, and often convince them indeed to, uh, to have their kids vaccinated or to have themselves vaccinated for they're not yet so I'm, I'm definitely open to those questions it's they're important questions well, i appreciate the spirit of your response i appreciated the spirit of her email uh, which is why i wanted to use it to tee up our conversation we'll talk about vaccines and kids in just a second uh that's why we've asked you to be here with us and that's what i know a lot of people are eager to to, to learn more about but but why don't we touch on, on what she's talking about with mrna vaccines across the board i mean she says i'm a 51 year old woman she says i've happily been vaccinated in other contexts i'm concerned about these. She's suspicious about what's going on with Pfizer and and Moderna. Can you take that one head on? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, there's a little bit of truth to the fact that mRNA vaccines are pretty well brand new. We've been studying them for 10, 15 years already. We've certainly had a few small trials with uh, with other viruses. Uh, they just sort of were at the right place at the right time for prompt and easy development with uh, with COVID-19 emerging as a, as a global pandemic. Um, we understand how they work. We really do. And essentially, we know that they work uh, by mimicking a viral infection without actually having all the virus's parts in it. So we, we fully understand them. We understand the mechanism by which they work and they've demonstrated to be extremely effective extremely safe and relatively easy to produce in a in a way that uh, can be scaled up quite quickly and uh, and can be distributed very readily and and this is why we have selected mrna vaccines as being a workhorse for this pandemic uh, there's there's no shady deals as far as i can tell out there with with drug companies mrna vaccines are simply very very pure so they have very few side effects and they're quite effective and why haven't we uh, you know looked at all those other vaccine manufacturers as she'd suggested in terms of uh, distributing them to Canadians, simply because the mRNA vaccines are effective and they're very, very safe. And and we kind of saw that with some of the other vaccines, very slightly higher signals for safety issues uh, compared to the mRNA vaccines. So these vaccines are being used not because of profiteering. I mean, granted, these companies have to be making money, but because they've been reviewed very carefully by uh, by governments and by uh, uh, by NASI, for example, um, to confirm that they're in fact safe and they are effective. And they just happen to be the sort of the cream of the crop when it comes to vaccines. And they happen to be the newest version of vaccines. Doctor, are you still I mean, I I remember the the messaging 
a couple of months ago, maybe it was a few months ago now, I guess, that, that people, you know, vaccines started becoming readily available. And who will forget the, I mean, the enthusiasm for a lot of people as soon as they could. They were signing up, booking their appointment. A lot of people, you know, they're parked in the parking lots outside the vaccine center for, in some cases, hours, just eager to get that shot. And the message from public health officials uh, for quite some time was don't pick and choose whatever vaccine, you know, the best vaccine for you is whatever vaccine is offered. Is that still the case? Well, yes and no. Um, certainly the vaccines that are available, we have the, the safest ones of the bunch. The mRNA vaccines are available in great abundance right now. So it only makes sense to offer those vaccines up front and as a priority because we know that they're a little bit safer. And when I say a little bit safer, we're talking by risks in the hundred thousandths of a, of a risk. So one in a hundred thousand risk or one in 50,000 risk of some more serious adverse events with some of the others, which are not there for mRNA vaccines. So because we have an abundance of them right now, it makes sense to pick those first. Um, however, it's not unreasonable to have taken that position earlier on in the pandemic. We were in the heart of a, of a third wave or a second wave, depending on where you were in the country, and, uh, and people were dying. And so it was really important to get people immunized as quickly as possible with whatever product was available because it was a limited resource. Right now, it's much less limited. We have freezers full of the of the best vaccine of the bunch. And so it's absolutely reasonable to recommend that one upfront and say that's the vaccine that we recommend. And I, looking forward, because these manufacturers are, are, have, are, are catching up with the, the, the global demand, I can really see that that's going to be the primary choice going forward with very few exceptions for re- people who may not be able to have the mRNA vaccine for legitimate medical reasons. We uh, I mean, speaking of Pfizer, uh, you know, the, the the pharmaceutical giant has submitted uh, preliminary research to Health Canada on the effectiveness of its COVID-19 vaccine in children aged five to 11. Uh, it was just on Saturday, as a matter of fact, October 2nd, uh, that the drug maker provided the initial trial data to the federal department for review as it prepares to make a formal submission seeking authorization uh, to use the product in children. So, so we'll acknowledge that. Perhaps you maybe uh, maybe let, let me just ask you, is there enough information right now for you to have an opinion on, you know, this specific age demographic five to eleven? Yeah. And, you know, that's a great question, because um, ever since this pandemic broke out uh, about 18, 20 months ago, we've seen more and more a trend towards what us professionals in the medical field seem to be calling uh, a uh, release by media or, or scientific releases by media. So we actually don't have a whole lot more information than what the general public is seeing. So do I have uh, more information than what you might have if you're an astute reader of the media, uh, if you have a Twitter account that follows some of the the Pfizer uh, news releases. Uh, So science by news releases is a problem in a way because those who are the experts don't have all of the information to be able to make a judgment or an assessment. We have to wait until the regulators have gone through all that data uh, and released it uh, for public consumption before we can really have a a very careful look at it. Uh, Only once they've had a very careful look at it, which is is reasonable. But these news releases, of course, are are teasers, essentially. We, We don't have a whole lot more information than you or any other member of the public has. What we do have is, is a little bit more background science and, and understanding of vaccinology and how, how medicine works and how these products work and uh, an idea of, of pediatric medicine and such. So we've got a little bit more understanding than the average public. But as far as hard data goes, um, science by news really seems to be a reality for, for COVID-19 products, as, as we've seen in the past several months. Um, 
So I, I have some background. I can certainly, I'm happy to answer some questions, and, uh, but you can't expect me to have detailed knowledge. That's in the hands of the regulators. And of course, they're bound by their non-disclosure agreements. So I, I, I have lots of friends in that system, but they can't tell me what's going on. Let me ask you a pretty direct question. Do you have blind trust in the regulators? I would say I do. Um, I, and, you know, I know a lot of them personally as friends and colleagues, and, and I do have a lot of trust in them. They are scientists, they are physicians, they are pediatricians in there. There are large advisory boards. Um, so I, I actually have very little concern about their review. Um, my, my larger concern in a way is, is uh, whether or not that, that the product and the data that has been submitted will actually meet their level of scrutiny. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be unheard of for FDA or Health Canada to come out and say, you know what, there's not enough data here. We need you to guys, guys to go back to the drawing board. Well, not back to the drawing board, but add more, add more data to it. Um, and, you know, people will be disappointed if that is the conclusion, but I think we have to respect the very hard work that these regulators do because getting it wrong with a vaccine is disastrous, absolutely disastrous to public health. So you really, there's a super high level of scrutiny with vaccines and safety uh, because getting it wrong with one vaccine could impact all of public health for decades. I mean, we saw what happened with the, the aut autism uh, arguments that Wakefield put out in the UK and how that devastated vaccine uptake in public health for decades, generations even. And we can't have a repeat of that, uh, even though that was a complete hoax. If we miss a risk, any kind of small risk that is uh, uh, you know, relatively common, it would be devastating to public health. So they have a vested interest in doing it right and doing it right the first time with enough data. Yeah, uh, we probably have Jenny McCarthy to thank for a lot of that stuff around autism and vaccines. Uh, but I digress. Uh, Mark B in SLC is listening in from Utah, says, you know, it's kind of weird to me how people question the efficacy of covid vaccines based on the need for boosters, but not annual flu vaccines. Uh, is that something that surprises you? Uh, it, it does surprise me. I think people make a lot of arguments about uh, the, the booster shot and saying, well, that means it doesn't work and you just have to keep uh, giving boosters on a yearly basis. And, you know, we've got lots of vaccines where we give regular boosters. Uh, your tetanus shot that you need to get every 10 years is a classic example. The pertussis shot that we recommend for pregnant women every pregnancy is another example. Um, we're, we're still learning uh, the the best course or the best series for a COVID vaccine, it may very well be that three doses is what you actually need and, and would have needed from the beginning, but we just needed the data to be able to confirm that. Um, you know, we find out all sorts of things about vaccines after we release them, like an, an optimal series and, you know, do you need a booster a year afterwards to get lifelong protection? These are all things that we continue to find out. And I actually, I don't even like using the term booster because it may just be that you need three doses to get lifetime immunity. We, we have yet to find that out, uh, and in which case it wouldn't really be a booster. It would be a, a three-shot series. So I, it is odd, but I think people, the general public, are learning about vaccinology at a breakneck pace, and it's a mm. science that they, most people have never even heard about, so they're skeptical about it, and, and that's reasonable. Skepticism is good. Misinformation is not. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, first of all, and, and people have reminded me uh, that there's a difference between uh, being vaccine hesitant and being an anti-vaxxer. And I think that, you know, I think, you know, we encourage people to, you know, I, I promise people that this show will be perpetually curious. 
And I promise people that the show will, will not be afraid to ask questions that may make people uncomfortable and what a hypocrite we might be uh, to try to sort of stamp out hesitancy that people might have. I also do believe that it's worth mentioning that at some point I would see one of our audience members can't remember who said, like, how long are we going to keep asking the same questions? Um, I understand that it's a journey for some people. I understand some people are are desiring the, you know, the luxury of, of some time. They want to see how the vaccines play out among the general public. I'm, I'm compelled to point out to those people that it is uh, those people, and, and I'll say it uh, frankly and, and directly, that it is those people that are clogging up ICUs right now and responsible for the majority of hospital admissions and delaying surgeries and extending the length of this pandemic. So if you're asking for more time, uh, you know, at some point, people are going to desire to see that that window closed. Uh, but I but I don't I don't want to take a big dump on people that have vaccine hesitancy. We want to be able to get to experts like you and ask the questions that people might have. What is it that's so different? And I'm not going to say five to eleven. I mean, ultimately, uh, oh gosh, Doc, I have so many questions for you. I mean, are we talking about like our are, are kids ultimately are toddlers or are infants going to get the covid vaccine? We talk about this five to 11 age group. But I mean, what happens at age 12? Can you can you take us from, you know, zero to 18, generally speaking, and, and how vaccines play into considerations that parents and caregivers need to make? Yeah, for sure. So as, as a general rule, uh, humans' immune systems, regardless of their age, tend to react in a very similar way. Um, people who are young and healthy tend to have more robust immune responses, so they react better. They're more likely to become immune after an exposure to a vaccine. Um, and, and as they get older, they're less likely. Uh, much, much older, they're, they're quite unlikely. So this is why we see recommendations for booster doses in, in much older age groups. And at the other end of the spectrum, the very, very young before their immune system is mature, uh, they may need uh, more, either more frequent or more additional doses, as we see with primary series in, in infancy, um, in order to get an adequate response at a very young age. The other thing that we see that that changes over the course of years uh, from pediatrics to adolescence to young adulthood is the dose that's required. So frequently with vaccines in the sort of less than 12 year old group, we see much lower doses of the vaccine to be uh, to be immunized against them. They've got smaller bodies. The distribution is a little bit uh, um, smaller volume. So essentially those doses need to be smaller. So that's why we see these evolving trials. Of course, you, you start with the adults, you start with the most susceptible people, um, and then you look at uh, trials with pediatrics. And because it needs to be a, a smaller dose in kids under about 12, you need to do a whole different trial to assess the effectiveness of those vaccines and the safety of those vaccines. Um, and uh, much past about 12, 13 years old, the immune system is essentially mature, like, like uh, a young adults would be. And so we kind of start to expect a fairly typical reaction to the vaccines, both immunological and side effects, as you get in young adults. Uh, and, and of course, the size of a 12-year-old, you know, anybody who's had a 12-year-old can, can attest that they're get al getting almost as big as, as a grown-up. Um, certainly these days, they seem to grow up pretty quick. And uh, much below that, they haven't had the, the hormonal surge, which can affect the immune system and growth. So we do have to break these up into categories because they may need different doses and different series of vaccines. 
Now, going into the future, will we see kids as young as a few months old getting a COVID vaccine? Harder to say. Um, we do know that Moderna is looking at a trial in kids as young as two, so we can probably expect that to be coming out relatively soon. Um, much younger than that, it's hard to say because uh, there's a few trials in kids as young as six months, so that that might be uh, that might be what what we'll see uh, in in the next several months to years. But on the other hand, of course, we're also dealing with a, a group that's got relatively low risk of severe disease, um, and and hopefully some of that group, especially the under one year group, will have protection from their mom's antibodies. So it'll become really important until those kids can get vaccinated, those super young infants, that those mothers are vaccinated so that they have antibodies to protect their kids. That is a huge drum to bang. And I'm so glad that you've made that point. It's it's just been horrific hearing uh, in particular ICU nurses and physicians talking about uh, pregnant women in some circumstances on ventilators, uh, emergency C-sections. Uh, it's been just a t- an, an absolute heart wrenching reality. Um, and I know that there has been vaccine hesitancy among uh, many uh, pregnant people for obvious reasons. They want to do what's best yep. for for their baby. They want to do what's best for their body. Uh, I'd like to refer real talkers that didn't have a chance to check out our recent real talk roundtable on that to check that out uh, just a short time ago on the show. Some amazing questions answered as, as part of that discussion. Doc, I want to respect your time. I've got a few quick hits, questions from audience members. I want to get, I promised I would. Um, Alyssa, Alyssa and I are actually in the same boat a little bit. Uh, she says, for those of us with uh, AZ and Pfizer for the two vaccines, I'm AZ Moderna. Uh, she says, you know, we, we're being told, you know, that we should consider a Pfizer booster, a third shot. Yep. Uh, Alyssa, like me, says the only reason I would be inclined to would be if it would be required for travel um, to have the same vaccine in two shots. What would be your advice? Yeah, at this point, my advice is actually those of you guys who got the AZ followed by an mRNA booster probably have slightly better immunity than those of us who got two mRNA shots. At least that's what's looking like in the in the literature that's coming out about the mixed uh, regimens that people have gotten with the AZ first. So in a way, that's a good thing. I mean, you guys, you guys did great. Um, but on the other hand, you've got this little problem that some uh, travel destinations uh, are, re- are requiring you to have two doses of the same vaccine. I, my advice to people who, who are in that boat is well, travel is still not really an essential thing unless it's essential travel. But if it's essential travel, it's probably reasonable to get a booster shot as long as it was more than six months after your last dose. You're not likely to respond too, uh, too vigorously with, uh, with uh, any significant symptoms uh, or concerns. And if it's really essential for you to travel and you have to do it, absolutely reasonable. You'll definitely get a good immune response. We're seeing excellent immune responses with third doses uh, in most of the populations that are studied, um, but probably not necessary at this point unless it's sort of an administrative problem like like for travel got it uh so probably not okay we've got an interesting question here from from scott he, he wants to put a little distance between himself and the question he says he says i'm passing along a question <laughs> i saw from a skeptic you'll never guess where doc on facebook um he says we were told early in the pandemic that if we get up to 70 75 percent vaccinated uh, general population or at least 12 plus uh herd immunity would kick in why hasn't that happened? 
Yeah, a great question. So herd immunity, we originally thought somewhere between 70, 75, maybe 80% of the population. So it has to be the population, everybody's susceptible, not just over 12s, would, would be sufficient. But what happened is that the Delta variant came out and the Delta variant is just so much more infectious than the original variant uh, th- that it really jacked up the amount of or the pr- proportion of the population that needed to be immune in order to get herd immunity. So it, it went from being more of an influenza-like trend transmission to being more of a varicella or chickenpox-like transmission where you really do need close to 90% of the population that's immune, including those under 12s, uh, in order to get really good herd immunity. So you were seeing that in some parts of the country where in certain cities where you're getting close to 85, 90%, they're pretty resistant to introducing infection. So we think it probably lies around there. Of course, there's some people that got the disease, so they'll have a level of immunity there too, but of course at, at a great risk of, of all their own health and the health of others. Um, but yeah, we, we will need to get to 85, 90% immunity because of the Delta variant being so transmissible. Doc, I know you've got, uh, you know, commitments you need to get to. So I'll make this the last question. I don't know if you're going to appreciate it because because this is an opinion question from Ken. Uh, Ken says, I'd love to hear the doctor's perspective on the trade off of the societal need for vaccine passports weighed against individual immunity decisions. How would you approach that question? Yeah. The, the it's a tough one. And I can appreciate many people have a political view that society trumps individual choice and the other way around, of course. Um, and I think I would reassure most people that these passports are, are going to be a temporary measure, um, which means that they, they are only there until we get adequate immunity to... Doc, you can take the call if you have to. I know that we're right up against the clock. Don't worry about it. Listen, thank you. Take the call. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Have a good one. Yeah, you got it. I know that's an important call. The doctor told us it was coming and we will always respect. I mean, you're talking to like microbiologists during a pandemic. Take the call. And I really appreciate his perspective. Um, an opinion question. I, 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 you know, I know that typically our experts don't mind those because uh, it allows them to weigh in and, you know, provide an answer based on the evidence in front of them. Um, I appreciate the question from Ken as well. Uh, that was Dr. Philippe Legacy Weens, uh, a medical microbiologist, a professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology uh, and Infectious Disease out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Any thoughts on what you heard there? I mean, this is for a lot of parents. I know right now people are going, when are we going to see this for five to 11 year olds? And of course, that'll depend on Health Canada and and all that kind of stuff. We've seen some preliminary trial data submitted. I saw a great question on the live chat. Somebody said, I've always wondered, like, who are these kids participating in these trials? And I bet there's parents out there right now being like, you know, I'd be happy to wait until the trials are done and we know everything's (laughs) cool. And I know that there are other parents that are going to say, I would put my kid first in line and both of those perspectives based on an incredible love for the child and a desire to do what's best. Mm -hmm. That's why we have these conversations, right? And I guess like once they're available, what thanks to those kids and those parents that were willing to, to be a part of the studies, um, then everyone can line up. No Get kidding. Those jabs. Uh, we're always eager to hear more about, you know, what you'd like to see on the show, voices you'd like to hear, subjects you'd like us to tackle. You can be in touch anytime. When we tell you we want your feedback, we mean it. And we read all the emails that we receive. Sarah reads all the emails we receive. <laughs> <laughs> Got this one from Luke 
who said, uh, first of all, and I love this on the heels of our conversation with Cadence Weapon uh, out of New York City this morning, living in Toronto from Edmonton proudly. Uh, Luke said, I, I want to thank Real Talk for what you guys are doing to articulate the frustration, the anger that in particular Albertans are feeling right now. Luke says, I grew up in Calgary. I moved to Toronto a few years ago and listening helps me feel connected to back home and reminds me of what I miss about that place and the people at a time when getting out there, uh, getting out of there rather seems like the best idea I ever had. Kind of sucks. eh? I, I don't blame you one bit, Luke. He says, my entire immediate family is in Alberta. And through this pandemic, I never really felt scared for them until right now. As a matter of fact, even when things were so uncertain and there was no vaccine, they seem to be doing all right. Now they're all vaccinated, yet somehow I'm still scared for them every day. And I worry what sort of care my dad in his 60s would be able to receive if, heaven forbid, something happened to him. I worry about how my sister-in-law, who's an ICU nurse, will hold up with more than double the patients they're designed to support, almost all of whom are unvaccinated COVID patients. I worry for my brother's business and how they'll manage an inevitable hard lockdown that could have been avoided if the Alberta government had any understanding of leadership or any sense at all. I know that those of us living in Toronto tend not to think much about any other part of the country, but right now, Alberta is the subject of discussion. People are watching in shock, utterly baffled at the stupidity and the cowardice of this government at every possible turn. Jason Kenney has accomplished what I thought was impossible, making Doug Ford look okay. Thanks to everything you guys are doing and best luck to you and everybody else back home. Stay safe. That from Luke, part of our Ontario contingent joining us, downloading the show. Really appreciate that. Got this from uh, following our conversation on National Day for Truth and Reconciliation with Dr. James McCocus, uh, unbelievable guy. What do you even say about that guy? He wrote back. He, he wrote that an guy. That, that guy. He, he, that that guy. Yeah. I reserve this. You know what I mean? That guy's a beauty. You don't just throw that around. You don't just bestow that title. That's like knighting somebody. That guy yeah. is a beauty. Angie wrote in and said, this interview was truly a beauty. She put it in quotes. Angie might have been listening to the show for a while. She says, Dr. James, everybody call. It's like he seems like a guy that you'd refer to by his first name. She's like, Dr. James, she's talking about Makokis, is a natural, engaging teacher. And how beyond shameful that governments of the day chose to with wonton just obliterate all things indigenous. Besides, Ryan, your entire interview with him being mind blowing and sad and hopeful. Two things that are sticking with me as I write this note. The oil rig smack dab in the middle of that wondrous stone indigenous formation. And the Lafarge cement plant on the way to Banff. Please continue these necessary interviews, Ryan, Sarah and Sam. That from Angie, we sure will. And I wanted to read this from Celia. We got a, I mean, we got a lot of messages from you on Thursday on that first, that inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Celia, uh, not her real name, uh, said, I've, I've wrestled with writing this letter to you this morning. She wrote it on Thursday, on September 30th, while tuning into your show, because I work in a Catholic school division. She says, I'm not Catholic. Uh, and I am torn of how the division chose to, quote, honor 
the national day by creating what's what's perhaps a biased view on how they perceive all of our students. There's so there's a blanket program for K to 12 students. And my anxiety in writing the letter is, is that should they discover that I took an actual sick day because my values and views do not align with theirs, but uh, but I chose to be home to actually reflect in ways that are meaningful to me. I'm sure they'd find a way to show me the door over the past few weeks. I've had several staff within the division say to me that they don't like how Catholics are being singled out and picked on. They don't want to hear me say that all other Christian churches have apologized over the years. And and as far as I can tell, have been working toward understanding and reconciliation for some time. They don't want to acknowledge that most of the residential schools were actually run by the Catholic church. Accepting responsibility for our past is clearly very difficult, but somebody putting on an orange shirt and showing some videos around indigenous history and culture, coloring a few pages, you know, is is that to suffice? Celia says, I grew up in rural Saskatchewan in the mid 60s through the 1980s, and there were several First Nation reserves in our immediate area, and many of my classmates were native and, and my friends. And as a white girl, who now recognizes that even as a poor farmer's daughter, I was indeed privileged. I never understood the messy lives of many of my indigenous friends. In fact, it hasn't been until this last year that I've actually come to understand so much more. Celia extends an olive branch and says much of this is because I've been a faithful listener to Real Talk and I've been blown away by the guests that have come to share their truth with us. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the show today she sang on last thursday and i truly need to sit with my feelings and continue to listen and reflect she says yours in confidence because as much as my work environment frustrates me i do need the job and i will forever continue to love on all the children under my care every single day celia she says p.s the real talkers on the live chat were right from the Ashes by Jesse Thistle, a must read. Thank you, Celia. We actually, for this week's question of the week, want to know, and you can find it at ryanjesperson.com. You just go right to the top of the page. You can see it there, the link question of the week. As September 30th marked that first national day of truth and reconciliation, formerly recognized across the country as a moment to commemorate and recognize and remember those children who died at residential schools, the survivors, the deep impacts those schools had and have had and do have on the lives of many indigenous people. How did you mark the day and what were your reflections on what you've learned or are learning? And we ask you to take two or three minutes and complete that. We're going to, of course, be reviewing those results and we're eager to see where our audience lands on this. Let me take a quick second to remind you that our friends at Local Waste have been keeping it local for 25 years. Construction, commercial, residential waste and recycling collection, they do it all. Their relationships with their partners, their customers, are based on integrity. They're never going to try to grind you for as much as they can. They want to grow the relationship with you, whether that means starting small or addressing some of the hesitance you may have about dealing with other companies that maybe don't display that same commitment to integrity. If you know, you know. You can find out more at localwaste.ca about the services they provide. Also, opportunities for entrepreneurs. Is there a space in your community 
for a local waste truck or two? Mikkel, Chris, Lauren would love to hear from you. You can give them a shout today at 780-306-0884. And of course, Local Waste will present this Friday, per usual, Trash Talk. Your emails, what do you need to get off your chest? Throw us a couple bones, non-political ones. We'd love to see it. Trust me, we are locked and loaded on the politics front. What's something else that's taken you off? Don't say raisins and cinnamon buns. That's been covered. Don't say pineapple on pizza. That science is settled. It belongs there. But if there's something else that's driving you nuts, we'd love to hear it. You can send us an email for Trash Talk Consideration to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up tomorrow, uh, speaking of Canadian voices, celebrities, Peter Mansbridge yesterday, tomorrow, Canadian rocker Biff Naked. What's she been up to lately? Her story as an orphan that made it big, surviving cancer at 37. Plus, it's Fat Bear Week, for real. We're going to talk to a cat, my national park warden, and we'll take you out to the mountains with my Jasper memories. Make it a great Tuesday. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.